Now the weekend has finally come. Gene Okerlund back in the control center. Coming up tomorrow night, the Great American Bash, live from Baltimore and available only on pay-per-view. It starts at 7 o'clock. Call your cable company right now. How about that tremendous tag team match between the nature boy, Ric Flair, and Arn Anderson with Elizabeth, with woman, and it's official, he's out of retirement. Bobby the Brain Heenan will be in the corner of Flair and Anderson as their coach. As their coach? Vince Lombardi, he ain't. Maybe Jerry Glanville. On the other side of the fence, two NFL greats, Steve, Mongo, McMichael, and Kevin Green. They have convinced the macho man, Randy Savage, that he can aid their cause by being in their corner. One of the most talked about tag team matches in World Championship Wrestling history will be headlining the great card at the Great American Bash. Plus, WCW Heavyweight Champion, the Giant, defends against the total package, Lex Luger. He's no longer the Shark, folks. He's John Tenta, and he wants revenge from Big Bubba for giving him one of the worst haircuts I have ever seen. In addition, Fire and Ice to tag to meet Rick and Scott, the Steiner Brothers. And there must be a winner in that one. As you know, two men issued a challenge to WCW this past Monday. Tomorrow night at the Great American Bash, we'll find out if that challenge will be accepted, and if so, where and when the match would take place. Tomorrow is Father's Day. I mentioned this last week, but kids, what a great gift-giving idea for Dad. Get Mom to make the telephone call. All of the tradition, all of the intrigue. I mean, you talk about that McMichael's green flair. And Anderson match. Factor in the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Bobby Heenan out of retirement. There is so much, I promise you, there'll be nothing like the Great American Bash tomorrow night from Baltimore. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 Years of Nitro, our chronological companion to World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, as always, is my broadcast partner, Dave Amantorp. Dave, how are you doing this week? I'm really excited because this is like uh, a landmark episode because not only is it the first time we're doing a pay-per-view, but it's the first time that we're recording in the new Casa de Root. Yes, yes, we are indeed uh, recording in my new house here. Uh, since we last recorded, I've had a new baby. I've bought a new house. Uh, I've probably put on 40 new pounds, <laughs> so we're doing great. Lots of new stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, hopefully, you know, the audio is uh, up to the quality that we've uh, got you guys used to. We, we always take great pride in that, so please let me know if anything kind of sounds off. Um, you know, we've ran a couple tests and it sounds good, but let me know. Uh, before we get into the show proper, though, I want to remind you that you can find us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. I'm, I'm a fairly active tweeter. Uh, Dave, also, you know, we didn't used to plug your Twitter because you were off Twitter for a while, but you are back on. Uh, your Twitter is just at Dave Amantorp, correct? Yep, that's correct. Um, I mean, if you if you look up 20 Years of Nitro, there's a good chance you'll find mine pretty quickly after that. You can also uh, email us at 20yearsofnitro at gmail.com, and you can find us on Facebook, uh, where I'm a little less active than Twitter for whatever reason, uh, but that is facebook.com slash 20yearsofnitro. So we are here to analyze the Great American Bash 1996. 
Dave, uh, are you excited for the show, given uh, that we've watched the Nitros? How do you feel the build has been on Nitro? Well, I, I feel like this is, um, I mean, with some exceptions with matches and things like that, this is the first pay-per-view I feel like is really influenced by the Nitros before it, um, especially with the Invasion, um, the Invasion storyline. It's a, it's one of the f- very few pay-per-views where it's like you have to watch it in order to understand uh, what's going on tomorrow night on Nitro. So I'm excited to see ex- as far as uh, if the stakes are raised in the invasion, especially since it's on pay-per-view. And there's a bunch of like really interesting matches, mm-hmm. I, I think. Um, I, certainly we have to see what kind of uh, you know disaster it is with uh, Mongo and Kevin Green because they both have combined zero experience in the ring. Right. So, but there's some really great matches. Uh, I particularly am looking forward to Lord Steven Regal versus sting. Um, I, I don't remember if they, when they announced uh, the cruiserweight title match, I don't know if they said that on Nitro or if that was on Saturday night or not. The, yeah, they mentioned it on Nitro. I'm not sure if that was the initial announcement or not. Um, that's a good point. But you you raise an interesting point that of the uh, – I, I tried counting earlier. It's either five or six pay-per-views um, that have kind of been within our timeline so far. This is the first that has felt like it exists within the Nitro universe, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, a lot of storylines such as, let's say, uh, Hulk Hogan – and Randy Savage versus the Alliance to end Hulkamania. You know, certainly that had segments on Nitro, mm-hmm. um, like uh, uh, Tiny Lister and the other big fucking guy. <laughs> uh, Jeep Swanson? Yeah, Ultimate Ultimate Solution and Z Gangsta. Yes, um, yes. You know, certainly they had moments, but, but largely you'll watch a pay-per-view in this era, and half the matches are things that have never come up on Nitro yeah. at all. So this is the first one where most of the card... Um, even if it's been developed mostly on Saturday night, for example, Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan, because mm-hmm. uh, Benoit's schedule, he's often not on Nitro because he'll be in Japan. Um, so, you know, he was mostly on Saturday night because he flew in for those tapings because that can cover two months worth of stuff. Yeah. So that's been mostly developed on Saturday night, but they have at least, you know, mentioned it and promoted it on Nitro in a way that was not true with the pay-per-views earlier in our timeline. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's go to the opening of the show. My team's ready. Flair and Anderson, the coach is ready. I hope those two pigskin buffoons are ready. And Savage, you think you're going to get your hands on me? You're badly mistaken. You're not going to tear me apart. I'm not worried. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. Oh, yeah. Macho man. Coach Macho man is here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Strength. Poor horsemen. Watch out for these guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Five. Savage. Kevin Green. It's a great American best, baby. And we're taking no prisoners. Woo! Giant, you've chokeslammed me through tables. You've chokeslammed me in the ring. But you know what? I'm still standing here because I'm the total package. And you're going to find out why. I've already got two titles, and I'm coming after yours. Lex Luger, don't bother looking up the definition of the Giant in the dictionary. Because you're going to feel it firsthand with the chokeslam. slam. <laughs> Super 
superstars of World Championship Wrestling. We take you right now the presentation of our colors and the playing of our national anthem. All right, well, today is June 16th, and we are emanating live from the Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland, in front of 9,000 fans, 7,323 of whom paid for a total gate of $123,406. Uh, that is a little bit of a disappointing figure, uh, including uh, the buy rate uh, for the show ends up being like a .48, I want to say, uh, which is pretty much right in line with past editions of the show, uh, which is a little disappointing. But uh, you got to keep in mind that this went up against Game 5 of the 1996 NBA Finals, uh, which featured the 72-10 and 10 Chicago Bulls taking on oh, the Seattle Supersonics. I was, I was about to say 96 and NBA, uh, that sounds familiar. But yep, so yeah. that is right in the middle of Michael Jordan's Bulls uh, you know, run, yep. and this was a huge Game 5, so it is uh, definitely understandable that a lot of the country was at home watching that. Yeah, and, the, and in relation to uh, other sports, they keep bringing up the fact that there's the Baltimore Ravens who are like the new franchise, and it's just kind of weird nowadays to think about like when they were brand new 20-something years ago <laughs> right. since they've won uh, two Super Bowls, I think, and uh, just have like, you know, like the entire career of like Ray Lewis has already passed by. <laughs> right. He's already had a career, murdered some people, retired. <laughs> just some. <laughs> Uh, in some pre-show dark matches, Rocco Rock defeated Jerry Sags, VK Wall Street pinned Jim Powers, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan squashed Disco Inferno. Uh, now, as was common at that time, the pre-show matches were on WCW Main Event, which was a Sunday show mm -hmm. that on a pay-per-view day would be used as a lead-in, uh, much in the way that Sunday Night Heat would be used by the WWF years later. So when they broadcast that, was it with the idea, it's like, here are some matches before the pay-per-view. Yeah, you would get, you know, Mean Gene running the car down and, and that kind of stuff. But they would also have matches to, A, to sort of, you know, because you need dark matches to work out technical kinks for the live crowd and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just to sort of keep keep viewers on their eyes on that program, which is promoting the pay-per-view and hoping to turn a few last-minute buys, you know, for people that are on the fence. Mm-hmm. Although, if you're a person that's, like, sitting down watching WCW main event, I don't know how <laughs> you're the type of person that's on the fence still. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, so we kick off with a short hype package featuring a few promos. First up is Bobby Heenan in a locker room. He assures us that his team is ready and that he's not scared of being attacked by Randy Savage, although his tone indicates otherwise. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's, just, it's only like five seconds long, but it's a really great promo. Yeah, yeah Brain is selling uh, yeah, his like, pretty good here. <laughs> I'm not worried. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. <laughs> we then cut to the Macho Man alongside Mongo and Kevin Green, who warns the horsemen to watch out. Then we're quickly on to Flair, shouting Flair things, while Liz, Woman, and Arn Anderson stand by silently. We then get a tight shot of Lex Luger's head with a plain back background. He reminds the Giant of several times that the Giant has chokeslammed him, but says that he's still standing. He has two belts, and tonight he's going after the Giants. Back to a locker room again where Jimmy Hart stands next to the Giant. The Giant bizarrely tells Lex that Lex doesn't need to bother looking up the definition of the word Giant in the dictionary. <laughs> right. I... I don't recall any reason why Lex said he would <laughs> or any advice where someone was like, Lex, why don't you look up it? It's apropos in, in of order, nothing. In order to prepare for the giant, you might need to look up the term giant <laughs> in the dictionary. I, I'm of the opinion that I think a lot of the old school guys are that wrestlers are better when they're not scripted. But I don't think that has to apply universally to everyone. There are some guys that are better when they are scripted. Right. 
and uh, I think the giant may be one of them. <laughs> and also Lex Luger. <laughs> anyway, Lex uh, needn't look up the definition of the word giant in the dictionary because tonight he's going to feel it firsthand in the form of a choke slam. He then goofily chokes himself. Yeah, I <laughs> I made a point that that was really great because he seems really gleeful. Yeah, he's having fun, that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. We then get some pyro and hype from Tony Schiavone before we go to the entrance ramp where Sergeant Craig Pittman ho- holds a flag while a recording of the National Anthem plays. The respectful moment is undercut uh, by the way that they'll cut to fans who, as soon as they realize they're on camera, just start yelling like, Yes, yeah, Sting! Sting! Macho Man! Woo! Right. <laughs> so, like, it's this very kind of solemn, dignified, uh, especially with Pittman, because, you know, he's got the whole Marine standing there very silently, completely stock still. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to mention as far as the promo and the music is concerned, the pay-per-view theme sounds like some sort of, like, regional this week in sports sort of thing. <laughs> it's uh, it's such a, a terrible... Ion Springfield? The <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Ion Springfield. And uh, also, right before we get to Pittman, this is going to be the first of like several uh, shots of the the guy wearing the Macho Man outfit. Yes, uh, in the audience, and it's because it's a really great outfit, and it's kind of noticeable because in uh, modern WWF, at least they or WWE now, yeah. they would kick that guy out of the arena, they, or they'd make him change clothes. This has happened a number of times. Here, they they keep they show him a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few wrestlers acknowledge him, including, I believe, Randy Savage himself when he notices the guy later. Yeah, and Tony Schiavone does later, too, when we get to that match. When the pyro is done, the camera cuts to Tony, who's going to be on commentary this evening alongside Dusty Rhodes. Uh, according to Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Dusty Rhodes was nowhere to be found until minutes before airtime. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Tony is wearing a tux with a red bow tie, and Dusty is in jeans, a blue t-shirt that he seemingly cut the neck out of to make it wider for his massive head, and a garish red leather jacket that he wears a lot during this era of uh, his like commentary career. Yeah, I, I was I was under the assumption it might be a pleather jacket. It could be. Right? Um, and, and the first time I saw it, I'm like... If he's in an arena for over three hours, that's going to get really sweaty. <laughs> oh, and Dusty, Dusty doesn't look like a man who smells good. <laughs> Tony hypes the matches at the top of the card. Dusty says he, quote, feels certain things about Lex Luger, but tonight he's in his corner. <laughs> Tony also says that we're going to get an answer from WCW on whether they will be accepting the challenge from the nameless interrupters who have uh, we've seen over the past three weeks on Nitro. Mm-hmm. Of course, referring to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. Dusty says if those guys come in here with a burr up their butt, let's pull them out and get after them. <laughs> yes. On a more somber note, Tony then mentions the death of Dick Murdoch, who died of a heart attack the day before the pay-per-view at the age of 49. Murdoch had a long career, which included stints and championships in Jim Crockett Promotions, Florida Championship Wrestling, Mid-South Wrestling, and the WWF. He was Dusty's tag team partner during the early 70s uh, as the Texas Outlaws. He was also famously racist and a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Former SmackDown head writer Alex Greenfield has said on podcast that Dusty once told him that Murdoch drove Dusty and some of the boys to a clan party uh, without telling them that that's where they were going ahead of time. Oh. 
but here Dusty, uh, you know, has nothing but kind words for the dead and says that he was a good man, a good partner, and that he loved him before he pivots back to talking about the pay-per-view. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job of that because it, it certainly could have been like this awkward moment, especially since he was like, they were close. I mean, regardless of the who Dick Murdoch was, they were close. Right. And But he brought it up and was like, you know what? Dick Murdoch would have loved a night of fights like this. Yes. And, yep. and I was like, that's he po- played that off really well. To kick things off, Fire and Icer come out for their match against the Steiner brothers. In this match, quote, there must be a winner as these two teams have gone to double countouts on both the uh, May 20th episode of Nitro and the June 5th episode of Saturday Night. We get a cool crane shot that pans over the crowd and back to the entrance ramp as the signers come out. They are both very over with the Baltimore crowd. Uh, this is, uh, I would say, in general through the night, it seems like a pretty smarky crowd, a pretty knowledgeable, you know, cheer the heels kind of yeah. group. Mm-hmm. Um, but they definitely are very into the Steiners in this one. Yeah. I also like the fact that this was a, the special stipulation was there must be a winner. Yeah. As if like most WCW matches, it right. didn't really matter who won. Yeah. Really. As if like we're tired of the 80% no contest finishes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, basically, they're just saying there can't be countouts and there can't be disqualification. Tony talks about the difference between the way each team was formed as Fire and I started out as opponents in several matches before gaining mutual respect uh, while the Steiners grew up together as brothers. They were born like that, right? Asked Dusty. <laughs> yeah, they were born as brothers. That's right. Deadpan's Tony Schiavone. <laughs> you get an idea right away that these two, like, they play off each other really well. They do. They, they really- do. Which I think is a big accomplishment for Dusty, since I think it'd be hard to play off of Tony, since he tends to just not want to like find the humor in things. You know, this is probably a good opportunity right up top to say that um, because it's funnier and, and we're here to entertain, I will probably most often talk about stupid things that Dusty says on commentary. Mm-hmm. But overall, I thought he was great tonight, and I would yeah. not have ever thought that I would say that, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I, th- I think it, it goes a long way when you can tell the commentator is really enjoying the hell out of himself. Right. And he is really good at selling the, the importance of a match and little points that he brings out of matches that I like later on. I'll, I'll, I'll mention them. Yeah. So as you listen to this episode and, and you hear the examples of, of things I say that make Dusty sound funny, keep in mind that on this show, he actually is a great job uh, of a color commentator. Mm-hmm. Ice train and Scott Steiner start things off by locking up and Scott backs train into a corner. Scott tries to power train out either with a hip toss or a belly to belly. It's kind of unclear what which one he was going for, but train stands grounded, get a hips toss of his own. Ice train does his weird twinkle toes head bob movements, which delight Dusty. Do it, daddy. Look at him right there, boogieing, boogieing around right there, boogalooing and dancing and getting ready. That's an exact quote. <laughs> an exact quote. I, I had no idea you were going to be putting. Oh, of course. Doing like spot on dusty impersonation. i don't know how i could just say that without trying <laughs> right. to sound a little like dusty right if you if you said that like straight you'd be like what is going on T- tony's reply to that he's showing scott steiner that he's not intimidating these are two teams who approach this match the same way but differently as well <laughs> <laughs> we're off to a hot start <laughs> <laughs> the two men lock up and we go into a side headlock from scott steiner Train pushes him off into the ropes, and Steiner comes back with a shoulder block. Train is back up, and both men hit the ropes. Train leapfrogs Scott Steiner, which is impressive given how fucking big Scott Steiner is. Yeah. They hit the ropes again, and Train hits a clothesline for two. Steiner lands some clubbing blows to Train's back before getting him with a hip toss, which brings in Scott Norton, who also gets hip tossed. 
Steiner then clotheslines Train to the mat, and Rick comes in and shoves Norton out of the ring. Rick runs in circles in the ring barking, and the Steiners do that little pose they do where Rick, like, runs through Steiner, uh, Scott's legs. Yep. God, it's really hard that there's two guys in the match with the last name Steiner and two guys in the match whose first name is Scott. (laughs) That makes this play-by-play really hard. (laughs) Anyway, the Steiners are in the ring posing while Fire and Ice recover on the outside. Once everything is settled, Norton and Rick Steiner are tagged in. Tony and Dusty talk about the importance of winning this match to gain some respect from the championship committee and perhaps a title shot at Sting and Luger. Norton hits elbows in the corner and then Irish whips Rick into the opposite corner. He goes for a corner splash, but Rick dodges. However, Norton comes out of the corner with a clothesline. He misses a second clothesline, but gets a shoulder tackle, which Rick sells awesomely by spinning as he falls to the mat. Yeah. He just careens while it's it's pretty great. Rick gets up and gains control of the clothesline in a belly-to-belly and then tags in Scott, who hits a big drop kick. But moments later, Scott Norton gets the upper hand with a Samoan drop. Scott rolls out of the ring, selling a shoulder injury from the move, which Tony and Dusty pick up on. In comes Ice Train, who gets a snap suplex among some headbutts before a belly-to-belly for a two-count. Train gets admonished by Nick Patrick for trying to take the fight outside the ring, which gives Norton a chance to get some underhanded punches from the floor on a prone Scott Steiner. I don't know if it's there must be a winner. Who cares if they take it out of the ring? That's just WCW referees for you. I mean... This doesn't excuse that, but in a way, I like the the weird phrasing of stipulation. There must be a winner because it, what it means essentially is no countouts, no disqualifications. But you don't want to call it a street fight because we have a street fight later, and that match feels very different. Yeah, and I think it's 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 good to be clear that this match is is a wrestling match taking place in the ring, and even though conceivably they could use chairs and ladders and whatever. It's more of a wrestling match than just like a descending into a street fight. If you want to kind of uh, excuse Nick Patrick here, it's almost like they want the teams to be going by the rules. Right. But, I mean, if all else fails, it's like, well, okay, there has to be a winner. Train gets a huge corner splash, and he's pumped up. The crowd definitely does react to him, although the reaction is a mix of cheers and boos. He goes for another corner splash, but this time eats the boot of Steiner. Steiner then hits a huge belly-to-belly, which gets universal cheers from the crowd. A follow-up clothesline dazes Train, but he manages to tag in Norton. Scott Steiner kicks Norton in the gut and goes for some kind of suplex or maybe a flapjack, but whatever was intended, he basically drops Norton right on his goddamn shoulder. Yeah, this is the point where I realize that um, the careless wrestling factor in this tag team match is at a high. For one thing, that is just a Steiner MO. Also, I kind of feel like that the, the other team didn't enjoy that very much. <laughs> yes. And so they returned it in kind. And it was definitely going to be uh, dropping Norton right on his head. But at the last second, Norton kind of saved himself by adjusting and yeah. bearing the brunt of it on his shoulder. So... Norton, who's not someone I would always compliment on his timing or ring awareness or just anything it, uh, other than being a big hoss who throws people around. Yeah, he's he, got the strength. He saved his life yeah, at that moment. Right. <laughs> Norton rolls out of the ring and Scott Steiner goes to continue the attack, but is stopped by Nick Patrick, uh, which again, I've got in my notes, doesn't really make sense since there must be a winner. Ice Train goes to talk to Scott Norton on the outside, but Patrick seemingly has a problem with this too, and he goes <laughs> to talk to Train, which allows Scott Steiner to exit the ring, 
uh, with a jumping double axe handle onto Norton. He rolls Norton back into the ring and goes to the top rope. Scott Steiner, who is a massive pile of muscles, goes for a flying crossbody, but the insanely strong Norton catches him in midair yeah. and hits a power slam for two. <laughs> you know, we they had that moment they went for on Nitro a couple weeks back where he was supposed to catch Hugh Morris like in mid-moonsault. Yeah. And we were like, that just can't be done. This is a much more reasonable thing to expect someone to do. And hey, he does it and it looks fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, the case could be made that Norton probably could catch Hugh Morris if it was a more like uh, appropriate, like the move that right. he does instead of just like catch this guy that's like horizontal. Catch this guy who's in no control of his own body. <laughs> right. Norton then begins to target the shoulder of Scott Steiner, which was injured earlier. He pulls Steiner's arm over the ropes and kicks the shoulder repeatedly before tagging an ice train who locks in a series of rest hold headlocks. After a shoulder tackle gets a two count, train tags back in Norton who hits a shoulder breaker. It's over, declares Tony. Rather than go for a pin though, Norton locks in a submission on Steiner's injured arm. Rick comes in and there is a fucking awesome sequence where Rick keeps kicking Norton in the face to get him to release the hold. Uh-huh. And Norton just no-sells the kicks and like yells at him like, ah, yeah, just like, it's so fucking cool. Yeah. The, w- one thing which is definitely a Rick Steiner MO is uh, he'll always have these moments where it's like, is he just stiffing this guy now for unknown reasons? But only, only Scott Flash Norton could no-sell kicks to the Face from a Steiner brother. (laughs) They are hard kicks, and it makes Norton look incredibly badass. Yeah. Uh, Finally, though, a kick does knock him loose. Norton lifts up Scott for another shoulder breaker, but fails to notice that behind him, Rick has tagged himself in on Scott's leg. The camera and Dusty also miss this. Uh, The camera is just out of position to kind of notice what's going on, and so Dusty doesn't see it. Luckily, Tony realizes what's going on, or it would be kind of a shitty finish. Mm -hmm. So he calls it. He says that there's a tag. Norton hits the shoulder breaker, but the now legal Rick hits a big clothesline followed by a suplex. Ice Train comes in to try and stop the momentum, and after a miscue between him and Rick over what to do, he ends up on the receiving end of a back body drop. As Scott Norton and Rick Steiner punch each other in a corner, Ice Train and Scott Steiner end up in the opposite corner where Train throws Scott out of the ring. Train then seemingly forgets the plan as he goes to follow Scott outside the ring until Norton shouts at him to run over and help him and they uh, beat on Rick in the corner. Ice Train then starts walking back to his corner and Norton again has to shout instructions at him. (laughs) So he heads back to the fight and hits Rick with a second rope splash which gets a two count thanks to Scott Steiner managing to climb back in the ring and interrupting the pin. Norton clotheslines Scott to the outside and sets Rick up on his shoulders. Ice Train heads to the top rope, but Scott Steiner reappears and shoves him down, and Train gets crotched on the top rope. Scott Steiner kicks Norton in the gut, and Norton doubles over, which allows Rick to hit a DDT. But before he can go to the pin, he's hit with a double axe handle by Ice Train. Rick tags in Scott, and they hit the top rope bulldog on Scott Norton, but the pin is interrupted by Ice Train. By, they, yeah, by the way, Nick yeah. Patrick has an insanely slow count on, on the Steiner <laughs> bulldog. Even by Nick Patrick standards. So after all that bullshit and near falls and finishing moves that get broken up, uh, thank goodness we still don't have a winner, cries Tony Schiavone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he just is enjoying the match. <laughs> I guess. Ice Train and Rick brawl while Scott Steiner signals for the Frankensteiner. He whips Norton off the ropes, and it would be exceedingly generous to say he even sort of lands the move. <laughs> yeah. Norton is just way too gassed to, like, rotate himself around, which you need to do when you're taking the Frankensteiner. Uh-huh. And Steiner uh, just doesn't quite get as high as he could have. 
And so Steiner pretty much just lands on his back, and then Norton rolls over slowly once they're already on the ground. Mm -hmm. He got it, (laughs) shouts Tony Schiavone, (laughs) as Scott Steiner covers Scott Norton for the 1-2-3 at 10 and a half minutes. As the Steiners pose, Tony admits that he didn't quite catch Norton flush, but it was enough. This match, I'd say, started out pretty good. Uh, Four hosses tossing each other around, a lot of power moves. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a few noticeable botches and some moments late in the match where Ice Train looked, like, lost. Just out of position, and he's he's green, and he looked it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Overall, good opener, though, and the crowd was definitely into it, so you can't take that away from it. Yeah, I thought it was a really good choice for an opener, um, since it's not, like, one of the big matches, but it is one that's going to get the crowd fired up. Um, just a lot of underestimated like feats of strength, uh, especially when you're mentioning on uh, both occasions when the teams would be lifting the guy up on their shoulders, just a straight deadlift of a guy that's like at least 250 pounds or, yeah. or Steiner putting up Norton on his shoulders and he, it like without any sort of hesitation. It's just like, it's crazy. It's hard. And it, it's really hard to, unless you're watching it to see like all these feats of strength and also just the way that these teams were just beating the hell out of each other, too. Longtime listeners may remember that Scott Norton is not supposed to lose a bunch of matches uh, because uh, New Japan loves him and they want to keep him strong over there. Yeah. Uh, so it's noticeable that he takes the pin. Kevin Sullivan uh, says on his podcast that the reason Ice Train didn't take the pin is basically they were trying to work out. Uh, we've mentioned Otto Wants a few times in the show, a German promoter. And oh, they're, yeah. they're trying to work out a similar deal to him where they'll send talent uh, who the German promoter will pay, but they'll appear on WCW television, similar to how New Japan does things. Okay. So Ice Train has already gone to Germany, and I believe will be going back at some point. And uh, so they're trying to keep him happy by not pinning Ice Train. So they're kind of walking a delicate balance here by having these guys who foreign promoters don't want to have lose, and then they put them together in a match (laughs) where they're going to lose. Well, just teaming them up is really writing themselves into a corner <laughs> as far as <laughs> unless you're going to have them win a bunch of matches, you're just placing yourself in an unnecessary like situation. Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, you Nathan Lane wannabe, Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan. Now, later tonight, you're going to be facing Chris Benoit. I'm going to talk to you on that subject in a moment, but did you see young Benoit? He's very, very I would say angry. You know, Taskmaster, tonight's tonight. We have the WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World of the Dungeon of Doom. You're taking on Chris Benoit. We don't need the four horsemen. We don't need anything or anybody. Oh, wait a minute now. Falls are going to count anywhere, as I understand it. Is that correct, Sullivan? Falls count anywhere in the building, but this isn't it. anywhere. Jimmy, this is not between the dungeon and the horsemen. This is between myself, Ric Flair, and Arn Anderson. You see, I got rid of the last horseman and showed him that Pillman was a quitter. Benoit is no quitter, but he's no horseman. I know what makes a horseman tick. Iron Anderson stuck out his hand. He made a deal. And Iron, this one is for you. When I drag Benoit through this building and I make him suffer, I'm going to lean over and I'm going to lay something on you, Benoit. The same thing I laid on Pillman was a left. And I'm going to show the horsemen, especially Arn and Rick, that they can count on the Dungeon of Doom. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Very succinct. 
Passmaster Kevin Sullivan. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring and David Penzer. We cut backstage where Gene Okerlund is standing by with the Taskmaster and Jimmy Hart. Mean Gene calls Jimmy Hart a Nathan Lane wannabe, which I only assume is some kind of homophobic joke. Because there's no similarities between Nathan Lane and Jimmy Hart whatsoever. <laughs> I think he's just like, Nathan Lane is a famous gay man. You're gay. <laughs> well, as as you tell as the show goes on, that's kind of where his head's at a lot. Yes, that's certainly true. <laughs> Taskmaster comes into frame, flexing his pecs and clearly sucking in his gut. Yep. Like, clearly. Clearly. Gene says that Sullivan will be taking on a very angry Chris Benoit later on. Jimmy Hart tells Sullivan that he should forget about Benoit as the dungeon have the heavyweight title and don't need the horsemen or anybody else. Sullivan says this isn't about the dungeon or about the horsemen. This is between himself, Flair, and Anderson. So it's not about the dungeon or the horsemen. It's about the leader of the dungeon and two of the four horsemen, the most important two. No, wait, there's only three horsemen right now. Oh, that's true. Yeah, 66%. And also he's facing Benoit. So it's not about... The Dungeon of the Horseman. It's about Kevin Sullivan and every member of the Horseman. <laughs> <laughs> Sullivan says that he proved to the Horseman that Pillman was a quitter. He knows that Benoit isn't a quitter, but he also knows he's not deserving to be a Horseman. He's going to drag Benoit through the building and make him suffer. He'll lay the same left on him that drove off Pillman, and he'll show the Horseman, especially Arn and Rick, that they can count on him. Well, yeah, you're going to show Arn and Rick because they're the only horsemen you're not beating. <laughs> right. He's like, I'm going to show all the horsemen, especially the two guys who I'm not going to beat <laughs> anyway. Right. Also, I noticed right here that uh, Gene Okerlund is taller than Kevin Sullivan. And he's taller than um, uh, Jimmy Hart, too. Yeah, that was just very noticeable and strange to me. And and I also noticed, I, I don't know if Kevin Sullivan realized his promo wasn't going anywhere. But he just like he ends a promo and basically runs away, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not that's not even the only time that happens tonight, too. By the way, well, he's he's a little bit in the doghouse right now. Um, so we talked last episode about uh, the fact that the Kevin Nash debut on Nitro did not win uh, in in the ratings against Raw. Raw actually won that week. Oh, okay. um, and so Sullivan was sort of blamed for that because it was his idea to have it built up for two weeks and Scott uh, Hall promises big surprise. So uh, according again to Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, which you should subscribe to for only nine ninety nine a month. Um, <laughs> he claims that Sullivan was not allowed in the booking meeting following uh, like the next week's booking meeting because they were so upset with him. You know, and he's their head booker at this point, nominally at least. Um, there still is a committee, you know, in place though. Okay. So, um, you know, things sort of resolve because of, of the success of the show and, and the next. So it doesn't, it's not something that continues, but but uh, Sullivan is feeling the heat a little bit at this point. So basically, did they not invite him to like one week's worth of booking? Basically, yeah. That just sounds like really childish. Oh, totally. <laughs> But it also sounds completely believable in the world of professional oh, wrestling. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Back to the ring we go as Dave Penzer, uh, who recently argued gun control with me on Twitter, makes his introduction for Elgato. <laughs> the look you gave me when I said that. Well, first I thought you were going to mention that he's now on Impact Wrestling. He is, he is. Uh, but, good, good for but him. You, but you went in and 
a very different direction. Yeah, than yeah. I expected. he and I because uh, I did I didn't I didn't catch that, uh, that. He and I in the replies to a post that Jim Cornette made went back and forth on guns a little bit. <laughs> so I take it that he's not about gun control. He is not, but he, in all the the conversation was uh, respectful. It actually was like as far as Twitter political discussions go oh it was it was fine like yeah I, I came away with with respect for him even though i disagree with his views right <laughs> anyway he is making his introduction for elgato who is being billed as being from cabo san lucas mexico of course on nitro last week he had been referred to as a south american legend so i'm unsure if wcw forgot that claim or if they don't know that mexico is a part of north america <laughs> i'm really curious which it is now is this the elgato that is a legend of legendary proportions the same <laughs> he's a guy with a mask uh, who close uh, the mask resembles a lot like a tiger mask in new japan pro wrestling so if you're familiar with that just picture a uh, kind of fat guy wearing one of those masks with some black pants he comes out to jungle music, complete with animal sounds. Yeah. Now, Wikipedia claims that he came out to what would become Goldberg's theme, so it's possible that the WWE Network just dubs over because they don't want you being like, why is this guy have Goldberg's well, music? Well, I, I can I can correct you on that aspect. Because, oh, please do. Uh, um, as far as this Great American Bash was concerned, uh, when I was watching it, I was having a hard time watching it on the network. So what I found it on DailyMotion.com. And it was the original Turner oh, video. Oh, nice. Wow. And the original Turner video still had the crazy jungle music. Oh, it did? So okay. I, I read that thing about it being Goldberg's music, and I'm like, well, clearly it wasn't this time. Okay. So maybe I they said they I think he wrestled on main event. Well, I will cover that here in his biography. Oh, cool. El Gato, the South American legend of legendary proportions, <laughs> nice. is an entirely made-up character. The gimmick has appeared on WCW only once before in a match the previous week on main event where he defeated Kurosawa. And after the match tonight, the gimmick will never appear in the promotion again. The wrestler under the mask has appeared for WCW going back to February of 1996, though he has never appeared on Nitro. He is Hawaiian-born wrestler Pat Tanaka. Tanaka's training came from his father, Duke Kiyomoka, as well as time spent in the infamous New Japan Dojo. Tanaka would spend a year wrestling in Japan before coming to Crockett in 1985, where he was used as a jobber. He would then travel to Memphis, where he had success as a tag team specialist, first with partner Jeff Jarrett, and later with Paul Diamond, uh, with whom he would form Bad Company. In 1988, Bad Company went to Minnesota to work for Vern Gagne in the AWA, where they were managed by Diamond Dallas Page. Oh. After the team split and feuded with each other in 1990, Tanaka would join the WWF. He was put in a mask and paired with Akio Sato to form the Orient Express, a supposedly Japanese team uh, managed by Mr. Fuji, who, like Tanaka, was actually Hawaiian. <laughs> they feuded with the Rockers, Demolition, and the Legion of Doom until Sato left the company in 1990. The WWF decided to reunite Tanaka with his bad company partner, Paul Diamond, only they decided to put Diamond under a mask and continued with the Japanese gimmick, although the team now contained no Japanese members. <laughs> the gimmick was quietly ended in 1992 and Tanaka would become a singles jobber through 1993. At the same time, he was working in ECW, where Bad Company was once again reunited uh, and he would compete there through 1993 and 94. By the time the team was wrapping up with ECW, they had already started appearing for WCW. There, the duo again would wear the old Orient Express uh, masks, and the team would be villain villainous Japanese, but the Orient Express name couldn't be used because of trademark reasons. Uh, I don't know what they were called. I could oh, not okay. find that. They were just like evil Japanese guys. 
<laughs> Diamond soon left WCW, and Tanaka would do jobs on Saturday night with his one win coming in the March 6th edition over the Disco Inferno. Whew. <laughs> During Gato's walk to the ring, the camera cuts to a fan yelling, WCW number one, baby. Who is that? <laughs> asked Dusty. I don't know who that is, responds Giovanni. (laughs) Conan is out with his United States Championship and his dubious Mexican Heavyweight Championship. As the bell rings, Tony says that it would be quite a feather in the cap of El Gato to win the U.S. Championship, and then makes a lame joke about how cats don't wear caps, before mentioning that Randy Eller is refing the match, and then once again saying it'd be a feather in the cap, for some reason, this really pisses off Dusty, who yells at Tony, spit it out, feather in the hat, that's all you need to say. That's all, that's all. No need to filibuster. <laughs> Tony has absolutely no response to this and just begins to call the action. And here to call the action for us is our own Dave Amantorp. <laughs> I was, I was going to mention the fact that he still keeps bringing that shitty Mexican title with him. <laughs> even though he has a championship with yeah. this promotion. Yes. But uh, I just tend to think that's kind of uh, when Conan can grandstand, he does grandstand. Yes. You were mentioning Kurosawa and Kurosawa is someone that's still employed with WCW last time I looked. He is. Yeah. Uh, And so I just keep wondering why when when Conan is on TV or on a pay-per-view with the championship, do they not even bring have him face someone that's on WCW that could like really benefit from that time? This is a the El Gato thing is baffling. Yeah. There's no reason. Why couldn't it just be Pat Tanaka? He's wrestling <laughs> right. Pat Tanaka. Pat Tanaka's a guy in your roster. Just have him wrestle Pat Tanaka. <laughs> it's so goddamn dumb. I, I mean, except for the fact that they're like, we can probably trick the fans into thinking Elgato is this legend, which I, I don't, I just don't know how well that works. Even, I mean, I would think, like, look at Conan himself, right? He is. In, he is legitimately in Mexico a legend. Yeah, he is the Hulk Hogan of Mexico. He has his own fucking weekly like TV show and not a wrestling show. Yeah, he just has a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, and they brought him in, and it's hard to get your audience to care about him. So why is your audience going to care about somebody they've they've seen once on main event, which means only a tiny fraction of your audience saw him at all? Right. And he's just some fat guy in a stupid cat mask. Right. It's so. St- <laughs> I don't know what they're thinking with this. The The reason that I th- want to believe it is, is because that Conan is kind of a dick and goes into business for himself every time he's in the ring and no one wants to put him over. <laughs> That's my thought behind it. And also, Tony mentions the fact that Conan won the U.S. title recently when it was, in fact, five months ago. Yeah. It's I don't, been, he's been holding on to that for a while. <laughs> right. So the match starts with a collar and elbow tie-up as most traditional WWE matches start. And the quick and it's two quickly exchanged wrist locks before El Gato takes Conan down with an arm drag, then hits a couple of kicks and a dragon screw leg whip. More kicks, which are uh, accompanied by these really loud exertions from El Gato, like he's an extra in a martial arts movie or something like that. And by the way, his kicks look really weak too. Yeah, they don't look like they. I mean, they're like on like the Miz's level as far as kicks are concerned. So he hits more kicks and another arm drag. Meanwhile, Dusty has this impression people are listening to the Great American Bash on the radio. <laughs> what? I didn't pick up on that. What did no. he say? I just, he was talking about people watching and people listening in on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, 
I don't, I don't know. Conan gets the advantage and scales the ropes for a fancied arm drag. And then the match goes to shit for a few moments as the two have no idea who's supposed to take the offensive. Conan eventually takes Elgato down by the hair and turns him inside out with a clothesline. Uh, he takes a long time to stand around before going for a pin. And Dusty immediately says, nope, before there's even a count because he waited <laughs> so long. Even Dusty's like, nope, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Conan then puts on some sort of hammerlock. Back on the feet, the two bounce off the ropes and avoid each other's offense before Elgato hits a high super kick for a two count. Like, considering that he doesn't look very athletic, he manages to get his foot all the way up there, uh, which I thought was the only impressive thing so far. Yeah, the sort of the story on Pat Tanaka um, is that he was very talented and had a lot of the like training and... Um, familial connections because his father he's a second generation guy mm-hmm. um to really make it but he was a big drinker a big partier he just didn't take this seriously he just wanted to like get drunk find some pills he was just not so he's somebody who's you know one of those like what could have been sort of stories okay. a comparison that i saw that kind of makes sense to me is marty Janetti, like a guy sure. who you know you could see a lot of the tools there but just didn't give enough of a fuck yeah um at this point um, Dusty decides to ask if El Gato means cat, <laughs> which, which I wondered if he has match notes, because if there's going to be any match notes about El Gato, it's that El Gato is cat in Spanish. <laughs> Meanwhile, El Gato tries for a crucifix, crucifix pin, and this is the weirdest time in which Conan decides not to sell for him. Mm-hmm. So the weirdest time to do it. And now El Gato is sitting there pretending it's a submission move. And this is the first of many other instances in which someone uses the ropes for leverage when there's not any apparent leverage possible. Right. He's holding this crucifix and, and grabs onto the ropes, which I just don't understand how that's helping at all. And it doesn't really matter because Conan's not paying attention and he doesn't react to the fact that he's holding onto the ropes. <laughs> at this point, the two get back on, onto their feet as you can clearly hear a boring chant break out. But it's like weird timing because Elgato hits a sit-down powerbomb which is maybe the most impressive move of the match. I got to say, I had in my notes that they were chanting boring. I went back and changed it because I actually think that they were chanting Conan. Were they? I was shocked. Like, I, but I, because it, I kept thinking that has to be boring, especially because it's to the, um, like, the cadence that you normally have, like, for a boring chant or a negative chant where you're like, yeah. Uh, a Bart Simpson being like, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I I do, I think they were saying Conan. Well, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were chanting Conan. But at the time they were doing it, Elgato hits his most impressive move, which was the sit-down powerbomb for a two, which was a two that he got even though the referee was crazy slow to get into position yet again. After the two, Elgato follows up with a, a pretty lazy half-Nelson rest hold. At this point, I realized, I, I noted that Tony keeps calling him Elgato from Mexico. <laughs> which I swear is his way just to see if people will call bullshit on who this character is. <laughs> Conan uh, counters with a leg lock that is very rough and like looks like nearly blows out Elgato's knee. Uh, we get an Irish shift to the corner and Conan rolls and hits a clothesline bulldog move on Elgato for a one count as Elgato gets the ring ropes. We get another Irish rip off the ropes and a clothesline for a one count. And then Dusty betrays our trust by calling this a great matchup. How dare you, Dusty? Why? <laughs> right. 
Elgato tosses uh, Conan out of the ring, but Conan lands on his feet. Uh, Elgato then tries for a baseball slide, but falls onto the floor in the most unathletic fashion possible. <laughs> it looks like he spilled over on a table or something like that. This is the point at which Conan hits the outside of the ring powerbomb, even though like from the beginning, there's no real like momentum, but he just forces his way through it because that it's time for the powerbomb. Uh, Tony and Dusty at that point say they have never seen that movie before, which means they did <laughs> not watch any Conan matches before this. So at this point, we know that they don't have any notes or have done any research on these guys. So you're probably right because at this point, I did catch on that there was a Conan chant. So right, yeah, the fact that they're they're definitely chanting it here mm-hmm. makes me think that that's what they were chanting earlier. So we get the get the chant for Conan. Elgato gets in the ring and eventually uh, Conan what hits what I just referred to as the Alabama slam in which he rolls over for the three count. This match was only about six minutes, but it was just like these two had no idea what they wanted to do in the ring. And so there was a lot of rest holds and, and it's just, it felt a lot longer than six minutes. And uh, Conan gets the fuck out of Dodge when it's done. He like gets up, he doesn't get his belts. He just leaves immediately. Which is another weird thing that, that that you'll see during this show is like they move from match to match really fast. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's like uh, if there's some issue with like how much time they have. I was trying to find if there was like a, a curfew in Baltimore, but I couldn't figure out if there was like if they had to like be done by ten or something like that. But uh, later on, there's like a even bigger example of how they just move right on to the next match right away. But uh, my last note for that was that match sucked. I concur. I don't have anything. I don't know why that match had to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm confused about the opponent. It just, the le- it, I'm glad we get to move on from yeah, it. It was well, stupid. But like I said, it's like, it, it's a U.S. title match, you know, whether it's a joke or not. And there's plenty of guys that could have benefited, even if right. they lose, like Kurosawa, for example. Sure. He is just as legitimate of a champ- challenger as Elgato, who was made up like the week before, pretty right. much. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Dusty. Sting, come on in if you would. Coming up, uh, we know the background between you and Lord Steven Regal. This guy, to me, kind of comes off as somewhat of a, a sissy mm. or a prissy, but we know better than that. Uh, looks are deceiving, and his actions are a little deceiving. This man could be one mean son of a gun, as they say. You're trying to stir it up a little bit, aren't you, Mean Gene? You don't have to stir the stinger up when you say he's a little prissy. I, to be honest with you, I got to wonder myself, because... He's talking about the stinger painting up nice and pretty. Well, your lordship, you also drink tea like this, don't you? That little pinky out like that. I gotta wonder about you myself. Is that the way they breed the boys over there in England? Let me just square something up with you right now. That ain't the way we breed American men here in the United States. And that's exactly where you are on U.S. turf, U.S. soil. You can take... God, I can't say that. I just can't say that. Mean Gene, we're on TV. You take it for one second. Well, I'd just like to point out one thing. This, this man has uh, wrestled, actually, as a, as a youngster in the sand pits of India. We know what he's done here at World Championship Wrestling. I think you got your work cut out for you, quite honestly. I'm not taking anything away from him. I'm not saying he's not a fantastic wrestler. I'm just saying he's a little iffy. I'm not too sure about him. And if there's anybody that can straighten you out in the course of 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes, it's a stinger, I guarantee you. Maybe I was a little too strong when I said he's kind of a, a prissy. Well, whatever. All right. Gene Okerlund is backstage with Sting. 
He tells Sting that he finds Sting's opponent tonight, Lord Stephen Regal, to be a bit of a sissy or a prissy. But looks can be deceiving, and he's one mean son of a gun. Sting says he's not quite sure about Regal, and it, he and Gene make limp-wristed gestures. Mm-hmm. Sting complains about Regal pointing out that Sting paints his face up, quote, nice and pretty, and points out that Regal drinks tea with his pinky out. Is that how they breed boys in England? Because it ain't how we do it here in America. Sting then either completely loses his train of thought or realizes the thing he was about to say was so homophobic it was actually over the line <laughs> right. for 1996 Southern-based wrestling show. <laughs> I'll let you decide. <laughs> I've, I've seen both um, claims in, like, recaps on the show. What did you think? My impression was, is, like, if I keep going out with this promo... I have to like say what I what I'm suggesting the whole time. So let me, I should just stop here. You you say something. <laughs> yeah, he trails off and asks Gene to talk instead. Yeah, Okerlund says that Regal, as a youngster, wrestled in the sand pits of India. <laughs> Sting says that Regal is a fantastic wrestler, but he's quote iffy, and the Stinger is the only one who can quote straighten Regal out. <laughs> He walks off and Gene wonders if he shouldn't have said that thing about Regal being a prissy, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. It's like, gosh, I kind of wanted to say something mean and homophobic, but that guy really took it off the rails. <laughs> this was this is not aged well. No. This makes I mean, it it's like, wow, it's hard to like Sting a little bit more than it was before I saw this because mm-hmm. he's just being a fucking dickhead here. Yeah, it's. I wrote the note. This promo did not age well because initially, when he said the sissy or prissy thing, I was like, "Is he being homophobic?" And then Gene like makes a very like obvious limp wrist. Like yeah. he holds his hand up for the, the 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 camera to see, and it just like it goes downhill. And and I think I think you're right. I think Sting realized like, well, if I continue it further, I'm going to say something more obvious. And so I should probably just stop here because the last thing I want to do is look like a huge homophobe before my match. I also like the idea that, uh, okay, well, I'm worried that Regal might be gay. So <laughs> I know that if we go in there in essentially our underwear uh-huh. and roll around on the mat together, mm-hmm. he won't be gay anymore. Don't worry. I'll straighten him up. Yeah. So we're like, <laughs> you just, I'm so disgusting that he won't want to be gay after like this incredibly intimate <laughs> moment with me. It's like the high school football players that hate gay guys, but they're like secretly like. Oh, totally. (laughs) Up next, the non-prestigious non-title of Lord of the Ring will be defended as DDP makes his way to the ring. (laughs) Yeah, I had fun right now. Diamond Dallas Page is back to silver and pink and uh, noticeably is getting some support from the fans as he comes out. He grabs a mic to get some cheap heat by claiming that uh, when all the Baltimore bimbos see him, they'll forget all about that chump. Carl Ripken. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) He tells someone in the crowd to shut up and holds up his ring. Marcus Alexander Bagwell comes out and Tony tells us that he won a queen toss on Saturday night against his tag team partner, Scotty Riggs, for the right to be in this match. So what a what an exciting way to set it up. (laughs) It could have been this other guy. We literally just flipped a coin. That's how important it is to get the fucking Lord of the Ring title. (laughs) Anyway, here to call all of the action of what I'm sure is going to be a fine match right. is our own Dave Amantorp. <laughs> I started this off with a disclaimer that I refuse to acknowledge that the Lord of the Ring is any sort of legitimate 
title or prize. <laughs> However, Bagwell, since he won a coin flip, is a far more legitimate title contender than some of the ones we saw in Nitro. For example, when Shark, Cobra, Loch Ness, or Ice Train got title matches. That's true. That's true. <laughs> he has more of a claim to this than uh, El Gato had for the fucking U.S. title. Yeah, because he actually, the coin flip, he did a thing. He did a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so Bagwell is like heated up in I couldn't for some reason at that point I thought this was in Atlanta and I thought he made fun of his home crowd but it's in Baltimore so I was like I, I don't know why he's like so worked up about like facing Paige because he runs in there and tries to attack him right away mm. yeah um, so Diamond House Paige he, he bails out takes a powder to the outside and then he basically circles around the ring gets back in Bagwell ha- does not pay attention to him whatsoever, and he gets attacked right away. And so he uh, he Paige hits him, and and Marcus kind of falls over the top rope, and then Paige just has to like kind of flip him the rest of the way. <laughs> yep. Paige falls outside with the double axe handle before tossing him back into the ring. Bagwell then gets upper hand as they are back outside brawling out out of the ring. DDP loves to sell, so this figures to be a very competitive matchup. And as soon as I wrote that down, Diamond Dallas Page goes flying over the barricade where, I mean, Page is like one of the kings yeah. of comical selling. Yes, yes. And he manages to get a chair wrapped around his head, and he it doesn't even make it look like it was an obvious thing. No, it, he does a great job of getting <laughs> entangled in this chair. Right. It reminds me of a few weeks ago on Nitro when he got himself all wrapped up in those cables. Right. It's The guy's, I mean, it's borderline too goofy but it's just right in the sweet spot for me yeah no this stuff i like there's stuff he does in the ring that i don't like when it comes to selling but this i was just like amazed of how he did that like i i i rewound it <laughs> to just to watch him get wrapped up in the chair i'm like yeah i swear he had to have that set up beforehand because it's masterful yeah, it's it is really great <laughs> uh back into the ring we get a uh, cross body block by bagwell for a two count um, at this point, when Bagwell is working on Page, Tony tells Diamond Dallas Page's backstory. Apparently, a tech grad, which is the only thing yes, he's this just was so weird. It's only a tech grad named Frank Machuga. Well, Diamond Dallas, we found out there's a drop to hold. Found out that he was homeless. Frank Machuga, a tech grad, who a graduate student at Tech, found him, of course, doing the thesis. We saw the videotape clips. We oh! Then he got his benefactor, gave him a big sum of money, told him go find a lawyer, and he got reinstated. And yeah, and not only got Fettable. reinstated, he wanted that's a last-minute replacement. Yeah, Frank Machuga is like such a, a specific name. I tried looking it up. Yeah, nothing. I don't know where that comes from, but he repeats several times that he is a tech grad. And he's not. And to be clear, he's not the benefactor. That is right. still potentially a storyline that could pay off. Potentially. <laughs> After that, we get some uh, off-the-ropes crisscrossing action before Bagwell hits Paige with a flying forearm that may or may not have been meant to be another crossbody. It's like kind of borderline, but I decide to give Marcus the uh, benefit of the doubt. So great flying forearm, Marcus. Bagwell dropkicks uh, Paige outside, which is another one of the famous like Paige selling, which he does a limp tumbling out of the ring, mm-hmm. which is another thing he does really does really well. As soon as he gets up, uh, Bagwell flies over the top rope for a crossbody onto the floor. And at this point, I realize this match is a lot more exciting than I really expected 
Marcus Alexander Bagwell versus Diamond Dallas Page to be. Yeah, I'd agree. Page tries to stop Bagwell from getting to the ring, but gets a shoulder to the gut, which he oversells by flying backwards. Bagwell goes from the apron to the top rope, but Page uh, hits the ropes to crotch Marcus. Uh, Dusty says that that'll make you sing like a canary. Also, uh, when Bagwell gets crotched there, Dusty tells us at home to find out how much it hurts by jumping onto our clotheslines crotch first. <laughs> right. I did have that. He's like, like, no, I, I know that it hurts when you get hit in the dick, Dusty. Like, <laughs> I don't need to do that. And fucking uh, Tony Tony just looks at him, or I don't know if he looks at him, but you just hear Tony go, I don't think I'm going to do that, Dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because after he gets crotched, Paige throws Bagwell onto the mat. Um, at that point, Dusty realizes that Tony's not replying to his suggestion, so he keeps, he keeps pestering him until he eventually <laughs> says, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> Like, Dusty thought he could talk him into it or something. <laughs> right. At this point, uh, Paige chokes Bagwell on the middle ropes, on the middle rope, and puts his fingers in Marcus's mouth and declares, Look, Ma, no cavities! <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Paige whips Bagwell into ropes and hits a back elbow, then whips him out again for a gut-wrench suplex. But it kind of a mix-up. I think that Bagwell was trying to counter it, but then, like, he didn't get the um, her corona or whatever. But eventually, he has to settle for a backbreaker. Paige certainly seems to be improving the ring, yeah. but I, I feel like that he shouldn't be given the job of managing the match, which I think he's doing here. And both these guys are still like pretty green. Bagwell's been around a long time. I mean, he's been wrestling, I, I think, since like 92, something like that. Yeah, he's he's learning slowly. <laughs> uh, Tony says about uh, Diamond Dallas Page, quote, he may be a low life in a dirt bag. But he is talented. <laughs> I really, I thought that was pretty funny. It's like imagine if this were legitimate sport. Imagine like um, Mike Goldberg or whoever the hell does announcing for the UFC now, saying like, "Yeah, Anderson Silva is a low life in a dirt bag, but he is talented. But he's really good at the, <laughs> in the octagon." Page then hits what I I could only re- describe as like a, a reverse or inverted like perfect plex because he had Bagwell like flipped around. Um, and he got that for a two count. So another whip into the ropes and Paige applies an abdominal stretch, which I think he was meant to do previously. And there's a fan that agrees because you can audibly hear him say, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, since he's in an abdominal stretch and DDP is a heel, we get the whole bit where right. he's grabbing the ropes. Randy Anderson. Got to get that leverage. And, and And since Randy Anderson likes to like, over involve himself into a match instead of doing the count he just goes right for the kicking his arm and uh which bagwell is able to uh roll over into a hip toss and then we get some more indecisive wrestling i wrote some more indecisive wrestling (laughs) ddp goes for a sidewalk slam but eventually he has to settle for a pancake because that's another one where bagwell tries to reverse it and they're he's like caught in mid-air and doesn't know what to do, and so he just kind of pancakes him for a two count. All right, so at this point, I have to be honest, I kind of zoned out for a few moments on this match, <laughs> in particular after they fucked up an atomic drop, because how do you fuck up an atomic drop? Well, speaking of the atomic drops, because I do have a note on this, they did two atomic drops. Page gets, gets uh, or no, excuse me, Bagwell gets Page with these atomic drops, mm-hmm. and this is where Page's selling is too much for me, because yeah. what he'll do is he'll take it, and then he'll hop after he takes it. 
Mm. Like there's just this extra hop of he comes down on his feet and ow, and then he hops up in the air like holding his crotch, like owie my balls. Yeah, and it's, just, it's too much. Yeah, and then we get a nonchalant cover uh, from Paige in which he uses the lo- ropes for leverage. In which again, leverage for what? I, I didn't understand. It's just <laughs> it's cheating for the sake of cheating, which is always good for a heel. But if you look like you don't understand the idea of using the ropes, then I don't know. It just is goofy. Anyway, uh, they're close to the ropes, and Bagwell tries for a bridge suplex, which they refer to as his finisher. I don't remember if that's been referred before as his finisher. Yeah, I don't know. Not that I remember. Uh, but Paige manages to block it by holding the ropes and then hits the diamond cutter, and we got a one, two, three. At the very beginning, I mentioned there was like a very fast-paced, good match, but then it really slowed down and kind of broke apart, and both these guys just... I think still need guidance from more veteran wrestlers in the ring with them. So uh, it kind of like exposed both of them as being pretty inexperienced in the ring. But uh, anyway, DDP, you know, retains the ring or whatever. (laughs) It's, it's notable um, how many fans jump up and pop for that diamond cutter though. Yeah. He, I mean, a bunch of people jump to their feet and start cheering when they Mm. see that move. That is, really getting over and at and at this time if you're not actually watching these matches the diamond cutter is executed really slowly too it's not it's not really like the out of nowhere sort of deal right it's sort of like he grabs grabs him by the neck and takes a few steps and drops him but either way it gets the pinfall so he he's still the lord of the ring of the south jimmy hart the man who's going to be defending this coveted wcw heavyweight title later tonight against lex luger the giant also joining us but i think the sixty-four thousand or million dollar question in 1996 jimmy hart where do you affections lie you're kind of the man in the middle we know about your association with the giant but what about lex luger well you don't mean gene everybody wants to know you know what's up between jimmy hart and lex luger sting's worried about it the taskmaster's been worried about it but you know jimmy hart's not worried about it (laughs) i wouldn't trust you as far as i could throw you on the other hand giant you've got to look forward to a title defense in this great city they're hanging from the rafters out here at the Baltimore Arena. But tonight, other things on your mind, Lex Luger and the torture rack. Well, the only torture that's going to really happen tonight, and I want you to listen very closely, Lex, if you think that you're going to come out there in that ring and put the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time in the rack, you're sadly mistaken. I am the giant, the one true immortal. The man has beaten Hulk Hogan, beaten Randy Savage, beaten Sting, your buddy, thrown you through a table, done everything and anything and wherever I wanted to do it. The Rock is a pure fantasy for you. You want reality? You want torture? The choke slam is all that you're going to know. You know, John, I want to point out for the record, that may be Mr. Luger's incentive. He vividly recalls your choke slamming him down through that table. One of the one of the most despicable things I've ever seen happen. Well, it's a good thing that underneath all those muscles, Lex actually has a brain. But it's not a very big one, because obviously he's in the ring with me. Lex, you should have lifted a few more weights before you decided to step in the ring with me. All right, the giant title defense tonight here at the Great American Bash. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an extraordinary evening. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring and the bondsman. 
Mean Gene Okerlund is standing by in the dressing room of the Giant, uh, who stands imposingly wearing his championship as Mean Gene asks Jimmy Hart about his relationship with Lex Luger, which I thought was a resolved storyline. I don't know why we're going back to this. Is Jimmy Hart on Lex Luger's side or, you know, any of that kind of bullshit? Yeah, but it's also the same thing where it's like occasionally they say, hey, remember when Luger and Sting didn't get along? Right. Let's bring that up again. (laughs) Jimmy says everybody is worried about his relationship to Luger, but he's not. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Gene asks the Giant if he's worried about being in the torture rack. The Giant starts out by saying the only torture that's going to happen tonight before abandoning that thought completely and saying instead that Luger can't get him in the rack. <laughs> Giant then calls himself the greatest champion ever as he's beaten Hogan, Sting, and thrown Luger through its table. Gene asks if that table incident will motivate Luger. Giant says it's a good thing under all those muscles that Luger has a brain, but it's not a big brain and Luger should have lifted more weights. <laughs> what? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> This, it, it, he is nothing he is saying is making sense <laughs> right. at all. It sounds like a wrestling promo, but mm-hmm. if you parse the words at all, yeah, it is just incomprehensible garbage. Right. Again, an example of someone that probably needs a script, which <laughs> I have to assume there was nothing scripted out for this because it does I, not yeah. come across as that. Oh, by the way, I, that was that previous one was another example of a promo which the giant finished and he just like ran out of the room. Which I still, I'm, I'm not getting why they're doing that, but he's like bolts right away. Back to the ring, Dave Penzer introduces us to Rey Mysterio Jr. A very small and slender young man walks out in a purple and black tights and mask adorned with question marks and a silver vest with colorful tassels on the arms. He looks noticeably nervous. <laughs> Rey Mysterio Jr., real name Oscar Gutierrez, was only 21 years old as he made his WCW debut here. Ray was born in Chula Vista, California, and was raised in San Diego for a while before moving to Tijuana with his family, although he still attended American schools all the way through high school. He was trained in the Lucha Libre style of wrestling by his uncle, the original Ray Mysterio, who lived in San Diego and frequently wrestled just over the border in Tijuana. The name Ray Mysterio translates to King of Mystery. Incidentally, Mysterio Sr. had an appearance in WCW, competing in an international tag tournament at Starcade 1990 alongside his partner, current United States champion Conan, whom Ray Sr. also helped train. Jr. began training at age 8, and in 1989 he made his in-ring debut at the age of 14, being paid $5 to wrestle in a Tijuana churchyard. He wrestled first as the Green Lizard and then as Calibri, uh, which translates to Hummingbird, for two years winning both a Rookie of the Year award from the Mexican Wrestling Commission in his first year and a Most Improved award in his second. After those two years, his uncle announced publicly that Calibri was his nephew and would now be called Rey Mysterio Jr. in accordance with the lucha tradition that names and gimmicks can be passed on to generations. Rey Jr. befriended Conan, and when Conan and others split from CMLL to form AAA, Conan helped a 17-year-old Mysterio convince his parents to allow him to drop out of high school, move to Mexico City, and join AAA. Mysterio wrestled in AAA for four years and won their welterweight championship. In 1994, Mysterio was part of AAA's When Worlds Collide pay-per-view, the company's first major foray into the United States. The show was produced jointly by AAA and WCW and attended by Eric Bischoff. 
Though the show did not result in any contract offer for Mysterio, he was soon brought to the U.S. by Paul Heyman, who was looking to replace the holes left in his roster by the loss of Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit. Once again, Conan was uh, looking out for Mysterio and was the one who mentioned his name to Heyman. Between 1995 and 96, Mysterio feuded with his old friend and training partner Psychosis, amongst others in ECW, uh, along with his regular appearances AAA and some appearances in Japan. A big part of why WCW had hired and pushed Conan was so he could provide an inroads to Mexican talent, and he immediately began talking up Mysterio. Ray's match at the Wrestling Peace Festival, which we had uh, mentioned before on the show mm-hmm. earlier this month, also made a big impression on the WCW brass who was present. So Ray was invited for a high-profile audition match here on pay-per-view against Dean Malenko. <laughs> wow. His, yeah, I know. <laughs> In his book, Ray even claims that when Conan told him about this match, he didn't mention that it was a title match or that it was on pay-per-view. <laughs> Maybe it was just a way to, to try to make him not be nervous about it by yeah. like, trying to play it down. <laughs> yeah, that could be. Shivani welcomes Mike Tanay to the broadcast booth. We've seen Tanay once before back on our Clash of the Champions 32 episode where he helped call Conan versus Psychosis. Tanay, of course, is a longtime fan of wrestling who began one of the first wrestling newsletter. Uh, Matt News at the age of 11. He was a well-known tape trader of wrestling programs and wrote for several national wrestling magazines before getting his own nationally syndicated radio show talking wrestling. This led to a job working for the WCW Hotline, offering news and gossip and broadcasting his radio show live from WCW events. His opportunity to get behind the mic at the announce desk came at the aforementioned WCW-produced AAA pay-per-view when worlds collide, when allegedly no other WCW announcers were just willing to do the show. (laughs) Uh, Having proven his knowledge of Lucha Libre, WCW would then begin using him as a third man in the booth during matches that featured Mexican stars, as they do here tonight. Yeah, by the way, I loved Mike Tenet back in the day in in this particular role when he shows up and he provides knowledge. And it's like he is the guy that's like kind of permitted to mention like CMLL and triple right. a and stuff like that. And he adds like so many like different, like interesting uh, pieces of information. And he has an encyclopedic knowledge of wrestling yeah. going on across the globe. Yeah. And, and, and also the fact that uh, I like him in particular in this role, I do not like him as a play by play guy. I don't have a lot of experience, uh, just a little bit when I would watch try to get into TNA in like 2010 and he was kind of doing it. So I I don't have much of an opinion of him as play by play, but I agree that in this role he does fantastic. Yeah. Once we get like towards the end of the road for Nitro when he does the play by play, then you'll see. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Malenko's awesome music plays and out comes the cruiserweight champion. The announcers put over both men, with Tanay setting high expectations for Mysterio by calling him a human highlight film of professional wrestling. Yeah, he also mentions, like, just looking at the nicknames is a great way to see the story of this matchup because it's the man of a thousand holes versus the human highlight machine or whatever it was you said. And I was like, that's just just something little like that adds a lot to for the fans to have an understanding of, like, how this match is going to play out. The bell rings and both men start off with a series of mat-based holds and reversals. Neither can get the upper hand, and this opening uh, feeling-out period ends with both men kipping up in stereo and staring each other down. I'm kind of giving it the short shrift because I just can't call all those little quick hold into this guy flipping out of that. It's, you know, the very standard opening lucha uh, 
type or cruiserweight type thing. Yeah, like the chain wrestling. Yeah, and yeah. It's it's really well done. They do a great job with it. Dean gets a drop toe hold and slaps on a headlock. The crowd is pretty quiet as they have no clue who Mysterio is, and they have not been exposed too much to this style of match. After some leapfrogs and other reversals, Malenko lifts up Ray for a suplex, but Ray expertly spins himself around Dean's neck and twists it into a Lucha-style arm drag, which sends Malenko to the outside and gets appreciative cheers from the crowd. Dean climbs back up to the apron, but Ray does a springboard dropkick off the second rope that knocks Malenko to the floor. Tanay gives some background for each men, telling us that they are both second-generation wrestlers uh, and giving a little bit of their history. He tells us that even though Ray is a mere 21 years old, he has seven years of in-ring experience, which seems to genuinely impress Shivani. Like, he hears that and he goes like, wow. And it's mm-hmm. it's like, uh, just if you told your friend an interesting fact, he's not putting on a character. He's just legitimately impressed by yeah. that. <laughs> Malenko has Ray bent over his knee with a knuckle lock on each hand, but Ray kicks him in the gut, rolls down onto his back, and pulls Dean forward, holding Malenko up with his feet on Malenko's gut, and then uses the momentum of rolling back so that Malenko ends up standing and Ray hoists himself up with his knees on Malenko's shoulders. Uh, It's probably hard to get a visual from what I just described, but basically it ends with them locked knuckles and Ray uh, with his knees on a standing Malenko's shoulders. It's very cool. He continues to roll forward, turning this into a sunset flip, but Malenko escapes before the count and hits a slingshot, sending Ray over the top rope to the floor. He goes for a baseball slide, but Ray dodges and returns to the ring where he challenges Malenko to come in and get him. When Malenko does return to the ring, they lock fingers again until Malenko does some cool twists and rolls to free one hand before kicking Mysterio's forearm to wrench on Ray's elbow. Ray sells an elbow injury, and Malenko immediately goes to work on it with stomps and a hammerlock slam onto the injured arm. Malenko continues to work the elbow for a while with holds and knees. Ray finally catches a break by getting a rope break from a hold, and he heads out of the ring to try and recover. Meanwhile, Dusty has been talking for quite a while about how men can be capable of overcoming size differences to win matches, and Tony hilariously asks Tanae if he needs Tony to translate uh, Dusty speak for him. (laughs) At this point, I also wanted to point out that it's like such a nice break from Nitro because this is the match that would get like the distractions or the commercial breaks and things like that. And to see this a match like this from start to finish it's it's so much nicer for like the whole experience of like <laughs> actually getting the match without <laughs> interruptions. And I would say for the most part, uh, all these announcers, they pay attention to the match. Too. Right. Yes. They're not, uh, you would, you might think they'd be hyping up the, uh, the hall and Nash thing, but they really don't do that during this match. They're focused on it. And also I think having Mike Tanay helps as well, because then, if the other two don't really know what to say or don't understand what the move was, you know, they right. have him there to help out. So Malenko wraps Ray's arm around the guardrail and kicks it. As he throws Ray back in the ring, Tanay points out that if Ray were to win the Cruiserweight Championship, it would make AAA stars the owners of half of WCW singles titles, as uh, Conan has the U.S. Heavyweight Championship. Yeah, and I, I like that because it was just by making a comment, he kind of raised the stakes of the match. Yeah, it was very, very cool. Dean grabs the hand of Mysterio's injured arm, but Ray fights back with kicks to the chest before dragging Dean into the corner and hitting a tornado springboard dropkick from the top rope. He whips Dean into the corner and goes for a Frankensteiner, but Dean pushes Ray up and but Dean pushes Ray up and off, and Ray backflips onto his feet and charges at the Iceman, who turns him inside out with a huge clothesline. 
The fans love this, and they should, says Tony, and he's right. <laughs> it al- I also think it should be pointed out because, like, uh, I know previously we had that Dean Malenko versus Sting match. Yes. And Dean Malenko, like, clearly looked undersized in comparison. And in this match, Rey Mysterio looks clearly undersized. <laughs> yeah. When do we get Rey Mysterio versus Sting? <laughs> right. Dean goes for a two count from the clothesline and gets back to working the arm of Mysterio. Tanay tells us that Eddie Guerrero won the prestigious New Japan Super J Cup the previous Thursday, uh, which is true. I think we've mentioned that before, but he won that, and uh, they just announced the, this year's uh, participants in the Super J Cup, and it's fucking loaded. It's going to be great. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't read that yet. Yeah, uh, I would definitely recommend if, if you're thinking about getting New Japan World, this would be a great time to get it because that's going to be starting up soon. And the A block is just full. They do like, um, you know, two different blocks, like a World Cup kind of thing. Yeah. And the A block is they've just loaded that one with like all the best guys. And it's just going to be sick. It's going to mm-hmm. be so good. A side suplex under Ray's injured arm gets Dean a two count. So Dean goes back to that arm based uh, submissions that he was working earlier. He keeps a hammer lock on through a suplex so that Ray lands on his arm again for another near fall. Dean sends Ray into the ropes, but Mysterio springboards off the middle rope and backflips over Dean before hitting a dropkick. But he's a little too close to Dean, and it's the first kind of subpar looking move in the entire match so far. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're going to find a nit to pick, it's going to be that one. Mm Mm-hmm. Shivani plugs the hotline and says that Tanay has a lot to say on there about the potential quote, hostile takeover of WCW, which is the first time those words have been used on air, and they will be used quite a lot more. That's kind of how they frame the angle of Hall and Nash and what's going on there. Hostile takeover. Yeah, and I suppose that's that's a better way to phrase it with uh, trying to go away from the, the invasion, you know, suggesting that's from the, mm-hmm. the other promotion. Instead, it's like they have bad intentions. Right. <laughs> Malenko goes right back to working on the arm. He gets Ray in a surfboard before dropping him into a bridging pin for two. Malenko returns to targeting the elbow, locking in an arm breaker for quite a while. A suplex gets Malenko another two. This is followed by a butterfly suplex and another two count. Dean returns to arm-based submissions. The announcers begin to play up that the supposed Iceman, Malenko, is showing frustration at his inability to finish off Mysterio. Malenko wrenches the elbow some more, and Dusty wonders if the ref should stop the match before Ray is permanently injured. Coming off the ropes, Ray manages to shove Malenko to the outside. Dean gets on the apron to return to the ring, but Ray hits some forearms and a baseball slide to Dean's ankle that knocks him to the floor. Ray then grabs the top rope and swings his legs between the first and second rope into Dean's kisser. He then nails a springboard somersault senton, and Randy Eller begins counting as both men are down in the aisle. This was another thing that uh, that uh, the one other negative I think with Ray Mysterio was once he uh, gets back on the offense he completely forgets that his arm is injured. But again, that was like the inexperience, and that's when I was like, I think he's really young here. That's also pretty typical of Lucha Libre selling. Oh, selling it, just isn't as big of a part of it. In, oh, okay. in, and I'm very limited experience. So if you're like a major Lucha Libre fan out there. Uh, and, and please feel free to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but that's sort of my understanding is that uh, selling is not as emphasized over there. Yeah. and Down there. And, uh, and forgive me if that's something you already had in your notes, but at some point, Tony makes a comment of why he's going after his arm instead of his legs because his legs are, you know, he's a high flyer. He uses those more. And Dusty makes a point of like, 
he that that Malenko is taking advantage of of like the progression of the action, right? And that he injured his arm, so he's going after the arm because that's what's injured instead of what you would think is typical. And I thought Dusty did a really good job of explaining that, especially if you're watching and you're wondering why he's not going with the leg. It's like, right. nope, it's an injured arm. That's what you need to do. You have to you have to know how to capitalize impro- on a situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was I was just like, way to go, Dusty, to explain. He basically explains why he's doing that. So. Soon, both men are back up and in the ring. Dean is in first, and Ray comes into the ring via another slingshot springboard dropkick that's done perfectly. It gets a two count. This then starts a series of pin reversals between the two until Ray ends up on the apron, uh, where he gets a springboard Frankensteiner for another two count. Ray whips Dean into a corner and heads up to the top rope as Dean wears him down with punches. Dean sits in the top turnbuckle as Ray stands there probably looking for his big uh, second rope gut buster that we've seen break the arm of Mr. JL. (laughs) Somewhere JL's getting like a phantom pain. (laughs) But Ray knocks him down and hits a top rope Frankensteiner instead. Both men eventually get to their feet and Ray hits some kind of spinning tilt-a-whirl splash thing for two. (laughs) Ray whips calling cruiserweight matches is going to be a real exercise. Yeah. I'm going to have to like learn a lot more Lucha move names. Ray whips Dean into the corner again and runs after him, jumping on his shoulders and then twisting around for another Frankensteiner. But Dean counters by powerbombing Ray to the mat. And it's got to be a lot of fun to powerbomb Ray Mysterio because he's so like even a guy like Dean, who's not huge, could just bam. And it looks incredibly powerful. Yeah. And like we have these cruiserweights that have been able to just powerbomb the shit out of uh, Eddie Guerrero. And now (laughs) they got someone half his size. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Dean pins Ray and puts his feet on the rope for extra leverage, getting the win and retaining his title in 17 minutes and 50 seconds. The ending gets a big pop and a standing ovation from much of the crowd. The announcers put over how great the match was, and I would say that this is the first very good cruiserweight match that has taken place in WCW in, in the Nitro era. Yeah, yeah, and... Since Dean Malenko is the true like professional of all the wrestlers, this is the first. This is like the first time someone used leverage that made sense, <laughs> right? And he got the pinfall. Um, and something to just to say because uh, this is going to be the beginning of like the era in which like now Nitros are going to regularly have cruiserweight matches, right? And just just to point out to anyone that's listening, you really should just watch these matches. You, there's just no way that we're going to be able to like really convey yes. these moves. It's really, it's tough. And not only that, the things go so quickly. It, it will take a long ass time to go move for move with these things. But this is, um, you know, probably I would say like, s- since we started with the beginning of our podcast, this is probably the best match. I was trying to think of that as well. Um, I mean, either that, or I mean like, um, either Guerrero and Johnny B. Bad. That was the other top one that I was thinking of. Or Guerrero and Benoit was yeah, another one. Yep. Um, but it, but this is just like, you know, of all the things that happens on this pay-per-view, this is pro- one of the most significant matches yep. because of where Rey Mysterio Jr. ends up and where, like, you know, basically the cruiserweight wrestling that WCW was known for essentially starts here. I would agree. Ray says in his book that he and Dean received a standing O from the boys when they came back through the curtain, and he puts over Dean for being one of the most professional men he ever worked with. Uh, this was an excellent match, as I believe it's not even considered the best match that these two had. Um, and I know that they have a match later where Dean does hit that second rope gut buster on Mysterio. Yeah. Um, because I, I, it's like one of it's my favorite 
single hitting of a move ever. Like, out of context, just one move on one person. Yeah. For me, it's Dean Malenko hitting his second rope gut buster on Rey Mysterio Jr. With that done, Tony dismisses Mike Tanay and sends us to the back where Mean Gene is standing by with Lex Luger. WCW heavyweight champions. He has his eye on the man who stands seven foot four, 470 some odd pounds tonight. It's you and the giant for all of the marbles. You know, Gene, I'll be honest with you. WCW requests this interview out of respect to them and respect to you. I'm here physically, but mentally, Gene, my mind's a million miles away. You're in the ring. It's on the ring and it's on the giant. I'm not going to stand here and shout and scream and tell you what I'm going to do to the Giant when I get to that ring, because I will say this. The Giant has changed the face of World Championship Wrestling forever. A force, a man of his size and strength, a man with that finishing maneuver, has never, ever been in this great sport of ours. A sport I'm proud to be in, a sport I've had the great fortune to be a world champion here in World Championship Wrestling, to be a four-time U.S. heavyweight champion, and to be currently the world television champion and currently the world tag team champion. I take great pride in that. A lot, a lot of pride. Giant, I am going to say one thing to you. You think you're invincible. That could be what works in my favor, because when a man thinks he's invincible, that's when he makes mistakes. Because you're a human being, Giant. You're going to make mistakes. And Gene, I plan on capitalizing on each and every one of them. I've got a belt around my waist. I've got a belt on this shoulder. When I leave that ring, God be willing, I want a belt on this shoulder. I'm going to have a belt after all of this is over with. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring. A somber Luger tells Gene that he's physically present out of respect for Gene and WCW. But mentally... He's focused on the giant whose mere presence has changed wrestling forever. Fucking great so far. Yeah. That's a great start of a promo. Mm -hmm. Luger then just kind of babbles about all the titles that he's had in the past. Yeah. Kind of goes off the rails a bit. He begins to address the giant before taking a huge pause to think of anything at all to say. Right. Clearly, he's just like, oh, shit. What, what, where are we going? And then he buys himself uh, some more time by starting off with, I have only one thing to say to you, and then taking a big pause yeah. and saying multiple things. <laughs> uh, namely, he that the giant believes he's invincible, but he's actually human and will make mistakes. Lex will then capitalize on those mistakes, and then Lex will have a belt on his waist, his shoulder, and his other shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh after Gene dismisses him, he suggests that he's going to have a belt before this one's over, which is uh, suggesting he's going to tie one on. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, right. You're yeah. right. <laughs> Gene loves just getting a line in. Yeah. He, he can't resist it. He can't. I was going to say that um, that I, I think Luger should try doing more of these composed interviews. I mean, I think the reason why he got lost is because he's not used to not shouting and talking really fast. But, like, at the beginning, you could just tell, like, you know, if he puts thought into it, he can deliver a pretty good promo. I agree. I So I, I think he should – he definitely should try doing more promos like this. I don't – I have no idea if he does any more there like that. But um, it, it it was it was going well for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> he has just one thing to say, but he doesn't know what it is. <laughs> 
Out comes Bubba with Jimmy Hart, and these fucking weirdos still have some of John Tenta's old hair from like four weeks ago. Yeah, and and the thing is, it it's a lot more hair than previously. <laughs> I don't know where they're getting this hair, but that's not Tenta's <laughs> hair. You know, one thing I've noticed, uh, and this has been true in the past, but it just kind of irked me this time. Jimmy Hart's airbrush jacket has WCW logos all over it. Mm-hmm. He's a heel now. It doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense that he's like, because he originally had it on there because he was a cheerleader for WCW because he came over with Hulk. Yeah. And their whole thing was like, this is where the big, this is the better than where we used to be. Mm-hmm. So that made sense. But now as a heel manager, it, it doesn't make any sense for him to be covered in logos of the promotion especially since i've heard that he has like over a thousand or something like that of those jacket. It. it's just yeah like you would think he had because I, I i'm pretty sure i've seen like a dungeon of doom one before and it's like maybe he should just wear that until he gets a new look because like yeah anyone that's just wearing like the company thing that's like the face thing to do right yeah Dusty tells us that we're transitioning from cruiserweights to two big uglies. <laughs> John Tenta enters and uh, to no music now. And uh, his like video that they play on the on the screens is just his head being shaved. <laughs> Bubba. <laughs> this is such a dumb feud. Well, it's just remember his first promo was like how the mailman was laughing yeah. at him. <laughs> and now his video is just making fun of him basically. I think it was that he went to get his mail the neighbors were laughing at him but I like the idea that his mailman the lowly mailman was laughing at him and, and it's also like it's been weeks so he's clearly shaving part of his head right and and I, I think that's like they're giving the impression that he's doing that and if it's so, it's fucking weird. It's very strange. <laughs> Bubba meets Tenta on the outside and both men brawl. Tenta gets in the ring and Bubba climbs the ropes, but Tenta shoves him to the outside and then joins him on the outside and pushes him into the steel steps. Shivani and Dusty try and fail to remember why this match is happening. <laughs> they seriously, they cannot recall what has led to this point. And it's a pretty straightforward story. Especially uh, since a music that his like video showed you what happened. Right. <laughs> they think that what happened is that Bubba joined the Dungeon of Doom and attacked the shark because the shark had signed up for a match against the giant. What actually happened was the shark lost a match on main event before the uncensored pay-per-view and was chokeslammed by the giant and kicked out of the Dungeon of Doom. Uh. Then he had a match against the giant to try to get revenge. And that it was after that match that they shaved his head. Was that like Bubba was already in the dungeon? Like they're just like, yeah, I don't know. Bubba joined the dungeon and then he kicked him out because they were mad at him or something. They're they're way off. <laughs> they're not even close on the story. I just I just wish that like when they're telling the story, they would remind you of the time when uh, Scott Norton got pinned when the when the shark was knocked out and landed yeah. on his legs. Because <laughs> that's like that's like an all time highlight. It yeah. was like the referee did give a fuck that there was a third guy in the ring. <laughs> Back in the ring, Bubba is stuck in a corner while Tenta slams his ass into Bubba's face a few times. <laughs> Bubba gets a foreign object from his tights and lays out Tenta. He gets the object to Jimmy Hart so that when Nick Patrick investigates, he finds nothing. Bubba gets a two count for this. <laughs> Fuck this match. Back on their feet, Bubba gets an enziguri and Tenta winds up in the middle rope like he's about to receive a 619. Uh, but if Bubba's not about to hit a six, I'm just, that's the position. <laughs> right. Bubba comes off the ropes and sits on Tenta's back a few times, pressing him down into the ropes. 
Bubba slides out of the ring and punches Tenta in the mush and goes for a pin with his feet on the ropes, but Patrick sees it and stops the count. By the way, another pinfall with leverage that doesn't make sense because I think it's like a nonchalant cover with the feet on the ropes. And also when he when he when Bubba came off the ropes a couple of times to do like that jumping on him thing, yeah. uh uh Dusty made the point that Bubba is one of the most athletic big men he's ever seen. That's true. I mean, maybe not here. Yeah. But I th- I think a lot of people do regard Ray Trailer oh. as one of the most athletic. Although big men although he seen. did say aside from the giant. Oh, sure. Um and then like right after when he does the slide out of the ring, he almost doesn't make it all the way and has to kind of like kind of push himself. So it's just like the timing of that comment couldn't have been sure. worse. I think the standards of, of this have changed it, you know, by 2017. Yeah. But I think in 1996, Ray trailer was an athletic big man, you know, compared to the other big men of his era. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely big men on that roster that can't really move like him, like Scott Norman, for example, Bubba complains to the ref about uh, not counting that pin and turns around into a Tenta punch. Tenta goes for a scoop slam, but Bubba grabs the top rope, and this somehow causes Tenta to lose his balance and land with Bubba on top of him in a pin, which uh, (laughs) Tenta kicks out of. After some more lumbering bullshit, Bubba pulls (laughs) Tenta into the corner and hops out of the ring so he can throw Tenta's knee into the ring post. Bubba starts working the knee and spits at the camera. The knee injury is completely ignored seconds later when Tenta gets Bubba with an Irish whip and then runs to get a corner splash, but Bubba dodges and hits a side slam. Bubba tells Jimmy to get the scissors ready, and Jimmy jumps on the apron and starts taunting the crowd with the scissors (laughs) with his back to the ring (laughs) as Bubba heads to the top rope. Bubba goes for a crossbody, but Tenta catches him. Tenta gets Bubba with a power slam and seals the victory at 5 minutes 24 seconds. (laughs) This is incredibly stupid because, of course, of course, Hart looks like a fucking idiot yeah. for dancing around with his back to the ring. Uh, the fact that uh, Tenta catches Big Bubba is impressive, mm-hmm. but we already saw that spot two match, three matches ago, whatever it was, in the opening yeah. with the Steiners uh, Norton. Mm-hmm. So big guy catches other big guy in a crossbody. I mean, it is impressive, but it just you can't keep doing the same trick on the same show. Right. So, yeah, I mean, overall, that was fucking stupid. It was a bad match. Yeah, and I just, I got like this deja vu that Jimmy Hart did that on a Nitro before. I'm sure. It's very like Memphis style, yeah. you know, just I'm so stupid. I'm taunting the crowd. It, it would, very and it, basic. And not only that, but like he gets into the ring where like his guy's clearly being pinned. Right. But it's only like after a few seconds in the ring that he reacts like he just realized what happened. So his, his timing also really was not good. Jimmy Hart then notices what's going on and enters the ring. Tenta grabs the scissors from him and goes to cut Hart's hair, but is interrupted by Bubba. Hart bails and Tenta grabs Bubba and cuts off a tiny amount of his beard. (laughs) We don't even see how much because Bubba covers his chin and screams about it being cut off. Yeah. So, the payoff, which, you know, is that's basically the payoff mm-hmm. for the cutting of his hair. And it's cutting off this beard that Bubba didn't even have until this feud. He right. only grew it so it could be cut off. And then he cuts off a tiny bit and we don't even really get to see what it looks like. I, I know there was a nitro where I pointed that out right away. I was like, huh, Bubba suddenly has like a beard. I wonder why that is. He and Hart retreat and we see Tenta in the ring declare that he's not finished with Bubba. Well, fuck, because 
<laughs> I'm certainly finished with these two. Right. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I'm, uh, not Solo- <laughs> I'm not finished with you. You just pinned him, <laughs> and you cut his beard. Isn't that like the culmination of the feud? Like, what else does he need from him? Sullivan, uh, Kevin Sullivan, will claim on his podcast that the reason for this shitty feud and the fact that Shark was, or Tenta was beating Bubba is that Bischoff was mad at Bubba for some some kind of bonus money that uh, he had negotiated in his contract that, like, it was, you know, he had negotiated something where they would pay him if, if shows did over a certain rating. And at the time, they never got that rating. So they're like, yeah, whatever. And now that they actually did, they were routinely paying him this bonus. Oh, so Bischoff okay. was trying to get him to quit. So he was just putting him in <laughs> shitty storylines and having him lose. And according to Sullivan, every time that random drug tests would come around, Bubba's name was always on the list. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, and he also then claims, as a part of that story, that Bubba went around with a flask of clean piss on him at all times so a, that he could beat the drug test. A flask? Uh, that's his exact wording. <laughs> he says that he has a flask and a hose so he could, like, you know, like, <laughs> like uh, what's his name in the Wizenator? Oh, Ontario Smith. I knew you would know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's like, it's so I could pass a test. It has nothing to do with the fact that I like to drink urine. <laughs> Just get that out of your mind. It's for passing a test. All right. Well, speaking of the Wizenator, Ontario Smith, and the NFL, let's go to an audio clip now as Mean Gene is backstage with the football players. Oh, nice. I must say that haircut has not improved uh, one iota since we last talked to Big John Tenta. The Macho Man Randy Savage outside of this locker room. He is pacing up and down like a cat. He has been reinstated. The World Championship Wrestling. We'll see him tomorrow night on Nitro. Joining me at this time, Deborah and Steve McMichael, Terry and Kevin Green. Tonight, these two gentlemen are going to be facing Arn Anderson and, of course, his partner, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, who has really stirred the pot. They're going to be coached tonight by none other than Bobby the Brain Heenan. Steve McMichael, very quickly, the game plan. We know about game plans. I don't care about a game plan, Gene. Baby, I don't care if the roof comes off this building. Flair, Anderson, we're coming to get you, baby. All right, Kevin Green. All I know, baby, is this like goal line, baby, and short yardage. I'm coming hard. I'm coming heavy. We're not giving up an inch, baby. Watch out. We're coming hard. That's it, yeah. All right, a couple of football greats. And here's the madman that really has been behind a lot of what's happened in recent weeks. The macho man, Randy Savage. Bobby Heenan, scared to death by your presence. The smell of winning is in the air and a little perfume, too. We're going to do a goal line stick. In, and then we're gonna knock Nature Boy and then force her into the end zone. These guys right here, Kevin Green and Steve McMichael, these guys are psyched to the max. Are you psyched to the max? Hey, psych, brother. Baby, I'm with you, Daddy. Right now, me and Gene Oakland, you're in a huddle, and this is the winning team. Am I right or am I right? Talk to me. Am I right? Let's go. Let's go right now. All right, they're head out the door. They're leaving me in the locker room. Terry and Deborah McMichael, Kevin, Kevin Green, Steve McBeck. I'm still getting a lot of chin music there for the Macho Man, Randy Savage. They're going to be facing Flair Anderson. Remember, woman and Elizabeth. They're not the nicest ladies in the world. They've been known to have a trick or two up their sleeve or elsewhere. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, the next match. Mongo, Kevin Green, Deborah, and uh, Kevin Green's wife, who I think we later hear is named Tara, I want to say. Uh, Tara, Terry, something, something like, like that. that. I, I honestly, in one year, out the other. 
Gene asks Mongo about a game plan, and a coked up Mongo begins screaming. <laughs> coked up. He's, there's no chance he's not coked to the gills. Uh, on a shoot interview, uh, Nash and Hall say that fucking Mongo would, ha- he had a guy whose job was to just bring Mongo's drugs to the arena because Mongo was too smart to travel over state lines with drugs on him. <laughs> so he just he just had a guy who would meet him at the arena and bring him the drugs for the night and yeah. then, like, leave. And Jesus, he's... I, like, right? Isn't he coked up? That's all I'm trying to say. I, I really wasn't paying attention. I just like the fact that all of them were wearing matching Letterman jackets, and I thought that was really cute. <laughs> but then after that, I was like, ah, oh, the football segment. So I was... But, no, I could tell... I mean, especially... We're talking like mid nineties, like retired fo- like sports athletes. Right. I would guess like ninety nine percent of them were on drugs at that point. Mongo screams that he doesn't care about a game plan or if the roof comes off the building. <laughs> They're coming for Flair and Anderson. Green is not to be out coked, and he furiously shouts that this is like a goal line <laughs> situation, and he's coming hard and heavy and not giving up an inch. He and Mongo then scream in each other's faces <laughs> like madmen until Macho enters the frame and Macho seems like the normal one. <laughs> right. Macho makes some more football analogies and they all run off, which is funny because uh, the match still isn't until much later off and they sprinted out of there like they were <laughs> on their way to the ring. They, it, that's, that's, you just have to imagine these guys just sprinted to a locker room and then sat down to wait for an hour. <laughs> or they were like... I'm coming down <laughs> <laughs> to the Coke room. <laughs> so that's now the third backstage interview in which the wrestlers run away <laughs> afterwards. Back in the arena, Chris Benoit is introduced for his Falls Count Anywhere match with Kevin Sullivan. Uh, we went into the reasons for this match in a previous episode, so I'll just kind of give the short version, which is that Sullivan was feuding with Pillman and his storyline ran him out of the horseman in WCW. Benoit took exception to this and has feuded with Sullivan ever since, uh, and Sullivan believes that he's doing his old friend Arn Anderson a favor by purging the horsemen of these undeserving younger guys. Flair has mostly just kind of stayed out of it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of all beneath Flair, and Arn has been caught in the middle of the whole thing, although he most often seems annoyed by Benoit's actions. It seems like he leans a little bit towards... He, agree- he sympathizes with Sullivan's position... But, you know, Benoit's a horseman still, and he's not going to... He, he's he's kind of taking a middle ground. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, by the way, this match in particular, I remember, like, when I was a kid and how much I loved this match. But I, I'm like, I didn't... I haven't seen it in a long time, so I have no idea how well it's aged. But it's just, like, it's a very... I mean, we can get to it at the end of the match, but it's, like, very standout at the time. The Taskmaster is billed from being from the Iron Gates of Fate, which <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard that before in his intro, but it's fucking amazing. Yeah. I love it. I, I, I wrote that down in capital letters. <laughs> from the Iron Gates of Fate. That's amazing. <laughs> and also they said that there's two referees, which I, if they hadn't mentioned that, I wouldn't have caught on. Oh, I didn't, notice, I didn't notice yeah. that at all. Uh, Taskmaster heads to the ring with purpose, accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Benoit nails him in the aisle and they brawl. And for a minute, you can't see it because the lights are low for Sullivan's entrance. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually they come up and you see these guys brawling violently against the guardrail before chopping and brawling more at ringside. Benoit is thrown over the guardrail and the two men fight in the crowd. 
They brawl their way up the arena steps as Randy Anderson watches intently. Now, we're very used to this kind of thing post-Attitude Era. Yeah. Crowd fighting happened all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. But in 1996, this was like nothing else unless you were a big ECW fan. I should specify that. And I wasn't. I kind of heard about them on the internet sometimes, and that was more like 98 or 99. But Yeah, and even so, like, that's like in the ECW arena, which is a tiny arena. It's not like a big professional place like the Baltimore yeah. arena. Um, and and just like just to think in comparison, we're like almost a year away from the Bret Hart, Steve Austin, I quit match, right. which is like one of the more famous ones of going into the crowd. So like that's, that's one of the reasons why this match stuck out for a long time is like no one goes out into the arena yeah. or, or as you'll see, like how far they go out of yeah, they go all the way up to the steps and eventually wind up on the concourse, and they head straight into the men's room. Uh, I will describe the action for you in a moment, but first, I want you to hear Tony and Dusty, who find it so goddamn funny that these two are fighting in a bathroom, uh, and I think it's worth a listen. Yeah. They're up in the middle level. They are going out towards the concession area. They're in the men's room. Well, I'll tell you what, that's some plunder in there. Moly, watch out. They better warn who's ever in there to get out. Can you imagine this? Oh, yeah, there's some bars taking some relief in there. How about, I can't. You better it. watch out. Oh, story open up. Oh, you, my goodness. Do you ever thought that them guys would have thought this would have happened right here? That'll teach, teach you to go to the bathroom during this thing. <laughs> my goodness. We have never, ever seen anything like this ever on a pay-per-view or anything in World Championship Wrestling. I tell you what, he's they gonna, are in the men's room on the lobby level. He's gonna pit him near the commode, it appears. Oh, man. Doug Dellinger got his head in there now, gonna slam the door. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. What did I say at the own slot? If you don't get him in the ring, the Taskmaster is in his element in the bathroom, right here in the John, if you will, in Baltimore, Maryland. Slamming his You talk about the outhouse, that's where we are right now. Uh oh, uh -oh. oh no. The Taskmaster had an idea to go to the Euros there. But Benoit fighting back. This is the best I ever seen when you talk about street fighting falls anywhere right here. Where the big boys play. Now he went right back into that stall. That's where he's going to go. Head first in the command. Well. Wow. Yeah, that would have been a that would have been a smelly situation right there. Oh man, now he got him in there. Backed him up, Doug Diligent having a hard time right there with security. Wow. I tell you, you talk There's about a lady. There's a lady in the man's bathroom. Look at that. There is a woman in the man's john right here in Baltimore. <laughs> can you believe that? Yes, I can. She just stopped off. <laughs> they got to get some relief here, baby. Where's he going? He's throwing down the laundry chute now. So what you heard there is Benoit Sullivan heading into a men's room. A few confused spectators shuffle around, and thankfully nobody had their dick out. Because this is not like a prearranged thing like they kind of get into later. This is definitely just an in-use men's room. Right. Yeah. You. Yeah. And as you can tell, because like the the room starts filling up. Yeah. So you can tell they didn't plan this out. Like fans realize what was going on. Sullivan holds Benoit in a stall and slams the door shut in his head. 
fans start to stream in, including a guy holding a young baby and much to Dusty's amusement, a woman. <laughs> right. Benoit sells and crawls around on all fours in a fucking arena bathroom. That's <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> Everything for the craft, man. <laughs> Sullivan slams the door on Benoit several more times, and Benoit is now lying on the floor. Sullivan hits the double stomp, his finisher, uh, mm-hmm. but doesn't go for the pin, even though this is false count anywhere. But these two men hate each other. They want to keep fighting. Yeah, it did not feel like a, it was time for a pin or anything. But yeah, he did. He did like throws it out there, and I think it's like so unconventional that both commentators didn't catch it. Benoit fires up and gets back into things with some punches, which force Sullivan back to the point where he's sitting on the end of a urinal. And for those of you uh, women, I guess, who don't know, the end of a urinal is always covered in piss. That's That part that he's sitting on is 100% of the time covered in piss. Yeah, and what, what, what was the word that Tony was using instead of urinal? Commode? He keeps commode. saying commode. Yeah. yeah, he kept saying commode. I'm like... <laughs> Dude, no one says commode. <laughs> Sullivan jams a thumb in Benoit's eye, and which he's just been touching a bathroom, so Benoit probably has pink eye now. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> tune in tomorrow for Nitro to see if he has pink eye. He tries to shove Benoit's head into a urinal, but Benoit fights him off, and now it's Sullivan's turn to have the door slammed on him. As Dusty laughs his ass off about the woman in the men's room, they make their way back towards the door. They find a maintenance closet, and Sullivan grabs a garbage bag full of toilet paper rolls and hits Benoit with it. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, Tony describes what he hits him with, and it's like, you just describe the softest thing you could hit someone with. Right, much. yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I think th- at this point, Dusty is like, now they should go to the women's room. Yes. They should go with it, like... Suddenly, he's, like, offended by the fact that she was in there. (laughs) Now outside the men's room, Benoit chokes Sullivan with a garbage bag. Sullivan responds by picking up a garbage can and nailing Benoit in the back with it. Surrounded by fans in the concourse, they continue to brawl, and Benoit hits Sullivan in the head with the trash can as Dusty implores the men to head into the woman's room. (laughs) They head back into the arena and fight at the top of the stairs. Taskmaster gets some punches on Benoit, and then Benoit takes a sick bump backwards down seven or eight concrete steps. Which which, uh, Tony calls, by the way, like beforehand. But that is chump change as Sullivan comes up and shoves him, and Benoit careens down a dozen or more steps (laughs) on the second bump. The shot of this uh, is amazingly cool, as in the foreground, you can see Jimmy Hart, who's in the ring, standing on the middle turnbuckle so that he can watch the action up in the aisle. Yeah. So you get Jimmy in the foreground, Sullivan standing up on the steps, and Benoit falling down the steps as they're surrounded by fans. I actually tweeted out a screenshot of it because uh, I thought it was really, really cool. Yeah, it's, and it's definitely like it's like accidental artistry in that picture. Yeah. And it... it because I remember I saw that you posted that, but the actual shot is like so quick that it, you don't get a lot of time to kind of admire the the, the foreground background going on there. And you know who uh, liked that picture, by the way? Jimmy Hart himself. <laughs> I was like, Chris Benoit. <laughs> oh, Dave. <laughs> by the time they make it to the bottom of the stairs, Benoit has recovered and taken control. They brawl at ringside right in front of a smiling fan who looks just like Roger Ebert. <laughs> like exactly like him. He might it might be cosplay, I don't know. <laughs> Sullivan crotches Benoit on the guardrail. Benoit tries to recover, leaning against the ring, but the taskmaster throws a chair at him. 
Benoit decides to crotch Sullivan on the rail in return and then tries to pull a table out from under the ring, but it's stuck. So he whips Sullivan into the guardrail and pushes him into the crowd to buy more time, which is such a simple thing that guys don't do. If they're trying to pull a table out and the table's stuck, they'll just keep trying to get that fucking table and a guy is to sell for eight minutes. He went to the Taskmaster and did things to him that explained yeah. why he had more time. Yeah, I I just I like the part when he throws him in the guardrail like chest first and then he just like muscles him over the guardrail. So it's like that'll buy me a few more seconds here. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know if you haven't noted, but this is definitely not a gimmick table that he finds. No, it is not. It is a serious table. Benoit finally frees the table. He throws it into Sullivan and then slides it into the ring. He sets it up vertically against the top rope, and it is, as Dave just mentioned, a tough table as it survives Benoit being whipped into it by Sullivan, as well as Sullivan jumping into it. Uh, he goes for like a big splash, and Benoit moves out of the way, mm-hmm. and Sullivan just jumps into it and bounces off. The table's fine. Yeah. Benoit hoists the table over the top rope in the corner, so it's essentially a platform on the top turnbuckle of the corner in the lower right of our screen. Uh, if you've seen the King of the Ring, Shane McMahon, uh, Kurt Angle match, they do the same thing. They build a little platform. Yeah. He runs at Sullivan, who is standing in front of the table, and Sullivan does sort of a back body drop that lifts Benoit up and onto the table. Sullivan climbs the ropes like maybe he's going to do his double stomp from the post and drive Benoit through the table, but Benoit stands up and hits a huge superplex on Sullivan to a massive pop that gets even bigger when Benoit pins Sullivan for the 1-2-3 in 9 minutes and 58 seconds. Yeah, and that's when the second referee came in, too. Because there was a referee in the ring. He gets a, oh, okay. the cover, and like the other referee slides in. You know what's fucking cool about this match? I mean, a lot of things. Yeah. But I loved how this match was falls count anywhere. And there were no near falls. There was one pinfall in this match, and it was the one that won the match. Right. That is, that's just cool. That's a cool idea. And it made it build towards uh, excitement. And the superplex was the logical place to bring that match home. Yeah. And and I think that also works well when it's like a real like feud between. Yeah. Like these two know each other. So he knows like that that's finished him. He He's finally finished it. That was a a very exciting 10 minutes as short as it was it was like action-packed yeah that match was like nothing else that uh you could really see in 1996 again unless you were among the niche market of ecw fans i don't mean i don't mean to say that disparagingly i just they have a smaller fan base the wwf or wcw so most wrestling fans seeing this have not seen a match like this and i just thought it was great i thought it was so good Mm -hmm. ahead of its time Real, I mean, that's like kind of an overused phrase, but this yeah. truly was two or three years. In in two or three years, championship matches would steal spots from this regularly, mm-hmm. you know? And when I was reading some of the, like, recaps at the time, like, it seemed like there was more than a couple of complaints of how, well, the table really doesn't help very much mm-hmm. as far as the superplex is concerned. But I, I don't think that's true. I think... Since it gives them such great positioning, you can hit like a very crisp, like superplex. I yeah, I thought so, it played a huge part. And and you know, like we, you're talking about Kurt Angle and Shane McMahon, he's able to hit the angle slam like without you know any sort of issues with it because he's on the. It's a platform that helps out like the balancing. So, I I was like I totally disagree with the idea that like it, it's like it's not just a gimmick. It helps out with the with the superplex. After the match, Benoit continues to attack Sullivan. 
Jimmy Hart runs in to try to stop him, but gets intimidated by Benoit, and he just runs off to get help. And he is relieved to find Arn Anderson running down the aisle already. You don't want to get caught in the bathroom with this guy. Absolutely not. Jimmy Hart running. Here's Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson coming out now. Jimmy Hart directing Arn Anderson in the ring. What is going on here? Benoit continues his assault. Arn Anderson throwing he the ball. He pulls him off. He pulled Benoit off. Uh oh. Man, it is Wait too, a minute. It's too late to talk. It is too late to talk. Arn throws Benoit off the prone Sullivan. Benoit fumes as Sullivan pulls himself to all fours. And Arn gives Benoit a little gesture of like, calm down and give me one second. Right. And then he turns and punts Sullivan right in the gut. The fans erupt as Arn and Benoit stomp Sullivan down together. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, uh, Benoit's defeating here of the Taskmaster has proven completely to Arn that he belongs in the Four Horsemen. Yeah, and and I was going to say that, like, obviously this match is, like, over 20 years old, but I got goosebumps when, when Arn Anderson attacks Kevin Sullivan. Like, I don't know. I think that's just kind of I, – I think as a fan of um, the Four Horsemen, that's kind of like – you were waiting for that moment yeah. to finally happen because, like, nobody likes Kevin Sullivan. Right, and no right. And no one likes the fact that he's breaking up this, like, really talented group. I mean, these are two heels – fighting each other mm-hmm. um you know the horsemen are heels and uh, you can kind of book some of them as faces occasionally but chris benoit is definitely like the more of the heelish because he's just got such a violent ring style yeah but anyone against kevin sullivan is a baby face yeah and because- and especially since like you know the feud was like kevin sullivan he says that he's not worthy that's the only like what other offense has Benoit done besides like this guy's opinion is that he's not worthy of the horseman, you know? Yeah, and and it plays off well here in storyline. It, it I mean, there's a logic hole there. the The real reason is because it was supposed to be Pillman, and they just had to be like, okay, yeah. now it's Benoit. Sure. So there's, I mean, it doesn't make sense because of that. Jimmy Hart returned shortly uh, with Meng, Bubba, the Barbarian, and Max, who has apparently joined the Dungeon of Doom. <laughs> right. They all check on Sullivan as Arn and Benoit escape down the aisle making four horsemen hand signs. The crowd is fucking loving this. Yeah. If you weren't watching this, you should have, says Dusty, as we go to replays. <laughs> I, I think that also shows like what you're saying earlier, that it was a very smart crowd. Yes. And in, in WCW, if you're a smart fan, you're a horseman fan, like for sure. So this was like the the moment that they wanted basically out of this match. Sullivan says uh, on his podcast that he wanted to make Benoit a big star and a world champion, and he kind of began that process with this match. Uh, he also slightly dubiously claims that this was match of the year. <laughs> sure. 
Sure. <laughs> it's great. It's not match of the year. Yeah. I don't think the match of the year features a guy trying to put another guy's face into a <laughs> urinal. So yeah. Sullivan points out that this match proved that Benoit could take a beating. It also proved that he could out garbage wrestle Sullivan. And it also proved that he could beat him with a wrestling hold since it was the superplex that got the pin. Mm-hmm. He also says that he tried purposefully to avoid doing anything too goofy in the match, like they tease the head in the toilet, but they never give it to the crowd. Right. And he says Benoit really wanted to do a bit where when they came back out, they'd get ketchup from the concession stand and he'd squirt it all over Taskmaster. And he was like, he just knew that wasn't really what they should be going for. Right. And uh, if that's a true story, which is an important prefix to anything you're saying about what Kevin Sullivan says. Yes. (laughs) uh, If that's true, then he's absolutely right. This match would have been hurt by either one of those kind of goofy things happening. I, I seriously doubt a guy like Chris Benoit would think that's a good idea. So. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Yeah. We then go to Mean Gene, who's standing by in a dressing room with Woman and Elizabeth. A show of unification for the horseman. Gene, have you ever seen anything like this? Tony, i got to be honest with you. I don't think I've seen anything like that. And I'm not too certain I've seen any, well, I've maybe a couple of times. Woman and Elizabeth joining me. Arn Anderson coming in from the ring. Yeah. Yeah. You, once again, yeah. the horsemen back together, apparently. Chris Benoit, step in here. Was this all? Yeah. There's been wannabes. Righteousness. Thought they were horsemen. They're out of here. There's people that dreamed and had aspirations of being able to do this. This man earned the right. What you just saw was the head of the snake being severed. You have tried to poison the most elite fighting unit in the history of all professional sports. Somebody today earned their stripes. His name is Chris Benoit. Sullivan, Taskmaster, whatever you want to call yourself. Now we are truly at war. Bring on the troops, because if you look around, we are loaded for a bear. Very quickly, Chris Benoit. Sullivan, you have been served. I warned you, don't mess with the horsemen. You didn't listen. Tonight, I put you in your place, Sullivan, once and for all. Thank you, Chris Benoit. Apparently reunited with the rest of the horsemen, Arn Anderson. Football players, you want a visual aid? You just got it. Rick, Rick Flair. I just saw two all pros in here with their women decked to the hilt. Now I wonder what they're thinking. McMichael, look at our all pro defensive tackle. Look at our all pro linebacker, Kevin Green. Ooh, look at the girls. And look at the mind behind us. Woo! Bobby the Brain Heenan, Coach, Coach Heenan. That's what they're calling you now back here. Well, I got a lot of things I'd like to call you. You've insinuated to the people out there and the savage and everybody else that I'm terrified, that I'm scared to death, and I'm shaken. Take a look Do at I, yourself. I have looked at myself, and there's nothing wrong with me. I'm a man, and I know, I, know, I know what I'm talking about. My feet are on the ground, and my head's right here. Now, you're trying to put something into his mind to do something to me, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. All There's right. a lot of things Thank you, that I'm... Macho Man would like to do that he can't do anymore. Right, Liz? Woo! Macho, Green, McMichael, the horseman in town. Woo! Thank you very much, gentlemen. Horsemen back together again. Woo! Ladies, please. This is being television. Let's get back to the ring. Okerlund makes lascivious comments uh, 
to the women before Arn and Flair come on screen. Arn brings in Benoit, who strangely yells, Righteousness! as Arn begins giving his promo. Arn says that Benoit had earned the right to be a horseman, and Sullivan had tried to poison the most elite fighting unit in the history of all professional sports. Arn says that the horsemen are truly at war with the Dungeon of Doom. Benoit gives an unspectacular promo as Gene is distracted by woman grabbing his ass. Flair wonders what the football players must be thinking after seeing that. The brain reiterates that he's not scared at all, and <laughs> Macho Man will definitely not attack him. <laughs> Flair gets the fucking burn of the century by saying, yeah, well, there's a lot of things the Macho Man would like to do that he can't do anymore. Yeah. Right, Liz? <laughs> right. God damn it. <laughs> that is brutal. <laughs> And I like it. I like it because I was like, I was watching Flair when he was talking. Yeah. And it's like he came up with that at the moment. He's <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, I could bring up like the whole divorce thing again." <laughs> Back to the ring as David Penzer introduces Lord Stephen Regal, accompanied by Jeeves. Regal is of course facing Sting in what is apparently being billed as a special challenge match, which means nothing. <laughs> right. Sting gets a big pop from the Baltimore faithful. Sting gets distracted watching his own pyro before slapping hands all the way to the ring. Tony reminds us that on the 1990 Great American Bash held in this exact same arena, Sting returned from a knee injury and defeated Ric Flair for the WCW Heavyweight Championship. And here to call all the action for tonight's match is our own Dave Amantorp. All right, well, Sting enters a ring as uh, Lord Steven Regal threatens fisticuffs with a ringside fan. Bell rings and Sting wails away right away on his lordship, within seconds whipping him into a turnbuckle, which in turn sends Regal spilling to the arena floor. Sting doesn't hesitate to exit the ring and throws Regal into the barricade. I realize at this point there's been a lot of barricade action tonight. In WCW in general. Is it in gen- I, I see, feel like they go to the outside and into the barricades a lot. Yeah. That's like their outside version of the collar and elbow tie-up, basically. <laughs> yes. After a uh, back body drop on the floor, Sting glares at Regal as though disappointed that he hasn't put up much of a fight yet. It's also like a really great shot because the, the camera's just a little bit like looking up to him, and he just has like this like look of disappointment in his face. It's pretty cool. Back in the ring, Regal begs off a wooing Stinger. Uh, and the momentary loss of focus gives Regal the chance to get an eye poke. Then uh, Stephen Regal just starts unloading with forearm shivers and European uppercuts, which is going to be like a common theme in this match. Regal hits a knee drop for only a one count and drills Sting again with a forearm. A USA champ breaks out while Regal grinds away on a standing headlock, and he adds a few palm strikes before uh, Sting whips him to the ropes and drops Regal with an arm drag. Once back to their feet, now it's Sting threatening the fisticuffs. Regal takes a powder to the outside where he uh, begins to threaten fans and stretch out his back. Um, it's noted that one of the f- people he argues with is the ECW straw hat guy. Oh, yeah. Stra- but he didn't have the straw hat, so it's you know he was in disguise, basically. <laughs> uh, but that was something I read later on. I would never have caught that, yeah, but, but that's yeah, just, a, that. just FYI. Tony mentions... Uh, that some upcoming shows in the northeast of the country, uh, Bruno Sammartino will be a special guest ref, and Pedro Morales will be there as well. So WCW continuing to kind of... they Sometimes it seems like they just kind of co-opt WWF history as like their own history. You know, yeah. they, they just sort of accept that you've seen all of that and all that's canon here, whereas WWF 
does not act like any of what happens at WCW really mm-hmm. counts. You know what I mean? Yeah, and also WWF's go is like in their long period of time in which they're ignoring a lot of like the really older stuff, especially Bruno San Martino. Right. It's it's just interesting because San Martino and Pedro Morales have meant nothing to WCW. They were not involved with them at all. Right. You know, so it's just notable to see them kind of promoting those names when they're swinging through that part of the country. Yeah. Uh, just as a offside reference, since uh, you mentioned Bruno San Martino, uh, recently in 2017, he um, announced one of the draft picks for the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the fifth round or something like that. But didn't a monkey do it for another team? <laughs> yeah. <it's> <laughs> <laughs> a orangutan, I think, for Baltimore or something like that. Right. And I just remember reading that the people at ESPN were just like pissed. Yeah. <laughs> As they should have been. <laughs> anyway, back to 1996. Uh, Regal goes for a handshake, but uh, Sting does the uh, you know, the hand through the hair. And all of a sudden, Dusty wants to know why Tony is sitting so close to him. And, I mean, Tony says, I'm in the same position as though I've been this close the whole time. I don't know why you're freaking out about now. <laughs> <laughs> Regal uh, tackles Sting to the mat and tries a few, a few forced covers as they're uh, locked in a test of strength. Regal, as always, makes his offense look really, it looks really physical and grinding to his opponent, either if he's adding a knee or if he's just, like, shoving a forearm. He adds a little bit of, a little, just a, a little bit extra malice to everything he mm-hmm. does. But Sting, of course, being the face, is clearly stronger than Regal, so he reverses the test of strength and drops Regal. But Regal kips up, which he probably did not expect to happen, <laughs> bre- breaks a test of strength and locks on a Cobra Clutch in like in a really impressive like uh, a flow of moves. He does it all really quickly. Yeah, I wouldn't expect that, so there's, you know, it's no surprise. Sting didn't expect that either. Again, uh, Regal pummels Sting all over the ring with uh, forearms and a European uppercuts and uh, starting to get the impression that Sting's going to be like pretty sore <laughs> tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And at this point, we get the uh, that classic... Uh, I just call it the Regal two-step when he starts dancing around uh, before he lays on Sting with some more kicks. Regal locks uh, Sting into full Nelson and more classic Regal as he uh, pushes against the back of Sting's knee to make him drop to the mat. Uh, Just more, you know, extra leverage where he can find it. Sting breaks out of the hold and comes off the ropes for a sunset set flip, which Regal, like, sells cartoonishly before he falls for a two-count. He, during, uh, while he's trying to avoid going down, he makes fisticuff motions at the ref. Like, right. I, I don't know how that's going to help him with this sunset flip, but he's just like so mad and doesn't know how to express it. <laughs> so he gets a two count. Regal gets up right away, and since Sting is on the mat still, he quickly drops an elbow on his grounded rival, which Tony mentions that it was like really good uh, capitalizing on the situation. Then Regal uh, puts on a sitting abdominal stretch, which uh, Sting eventually escapes. But the uh, the beating he's received thus far is already starting to show his effect. So Sting's kind of stumbling around the ring trying to get his composure, which gives Regal time to size him up for a, a drop kick in which he like hits him in the back of the uh, the ear, basically. So that probably is going to leave a ringing for a while. The drop kick only gets a two count, but Regal doesn't seem very concerned about that and starts unloading with knees and, and yet again a European uppercut. I like that Shivani puts over during this match. I'm not sure if it's right here, but I just have the note. He talks about how you can clearly see why others have tucked their tails and fled WCW. 
because of this hard hitting style action. Right. You know, I, I I liked it. It was putting over like, yeah, you see why the <laughs> Namby, why Johnny B. Bad isn't here anymore. You know, yeah, it's it's like um, it's it's a lame insult, but it's like. It's good timing for the lame right, insult. Yes. Regal slaps on a headlock and a nail Sting with more open palms to the face as Sting just gets a fuckloosies during this match. Yeah. It's it's fate palms to the face the whole time. And I, I don't I can't really tell like how hard he's actually hitting him, but if he's like hitting him like pretty flush with as many times as he does it, it's just Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. And as he's doing this, he's uh, taunting America in general at the ringside <laughs> camera. So Sting breaks a hold by uh, hitting a belly-to-back suplex. But again, Sting is worse for the wear and is unable to capitalize. And uh, so Regal recovers and applies a hammerlock, uh, one assisted by, again, you know, an extra knee to Sting's face. Then he holds out the vulnerable arm and drops a leg for only a one count. So Sting gets to his feet but is quickly tripped up from behind by Regal who then uh, gets uh, another headlock on and yet again, more open palms of the face. Uh, once to their feet, Sting whips uh, Regal into the ropes to get out of the headlock and the two collide and fall to the mat. So now we're at the kind of the, the gut check hour. Then Regal gets on a half Nelson and starts taunting the ringside fans. Regal then turns the half Nelson into a hammerlock and is yet another case of unknown rope leverage when he grabs the ropes while having a hammer lock on. Then Regal and the referee start having words as Lord Steven Regal basically allows Sting to get some time to recover. And the Stinger mounts Rally and manages to ensnare Regal in an abdominal stretch. Regal survives a hold and drops Sting with a forearm shiver before some more dancing. And he does the thing where he flexes with uh, pushing his finger yeah. on the on the bicep. The crowd hates him. The crowd's he gets a lot of heat. Yeah, and now he puts Sting into a head scissor. So anything he could do to wrap around his head or his neck, like he has busted out every move possible. <laughs> uh, Regal adds an arm bar to the hold, which gives him the opening to drop a leg across Sting's face. A lateral press only gets a two, and so Regal goes for another arm bar. Uh, Regal releases a hold, which uh, is costly, as Sting begins to stinger up or whatever mm-hmm. we decide to call mm-hmm. it. But... Uh, Regal's not interested in getting to that point in the match yet, so he gives him a thumb in the eye. <laughs> so he gets Sting into the double underhook, but he just holds it as like a submission move, hmm. which is unconventional, but I I guess it works. Yeah, but sure. When, it, when, when there's a hold and then Regal goes and does something else, basically during this whole match, it's because like Regal just lets go moves, which seems to be kind of a questionable uh, offense, but like... Also, he has been having his way with Sting this whole time. Right. Yep. And I think he eventually just gets tired of holding him in and holds. So he has an underhook, but he just like gives up, backs Sting into the corner, and starts unloading with more European uppercuts. Um, in which this uh, gets Stinger up number two as he drop kicks Regal and nails a couple of clotheslines for a two count. Unwavered, Sting heads to the top rope, but Regal stops him, and then Regal goes to the top rope himself. And hits a top rope double unhook suplex for a two count. You know, it, it sounds really cool, but like it was almost a disaster. He almost dropped Sting on his head. Yeah. Shivani says anyone doubting Regal's toughness need only look back to his recent matches at Super Brawl uh, and on Nitro against the Belfast Bruiser. And that's a good reminder because mm-hmm. it, it, Shivani, a couple times in this match, almost seems annoyed at the insinuations that Regal isn't, like, tough or manly. Right. Because several times, even though Regal's the heel, several times he's like, I don't know where these guys are coming from. This Regal's like a tough son of a bitch. Yeah. 
It's it's almost like he saw that Sting promo and was like offended by, the, <laughs> yeah, by yeah. it somehow. At this point, Regal uh, puts on the Regal stretch, which I, I don't think Dusty really caught on that that's his finisher, but Tony right. was able to call it. And and from from the angle that we have, you can't see Sting's face, and and Regal is just like grinding on this, and Sting, like nowadays, this would be like the the guys out call the match, right? But back, but at the time, they didn't really like call it like that, so he is just like wrenching on him and wrenching on him, and Sting doesn't give up or really give a response, and Regal just releases the hold, which to me seems like this might be the vital error that he has in this. Yeah. Match. I, you mentioned that earlier, how he was letting go of holds. And this seems like the best example. He's got his finisher in. Yeah. And he just lets go of it. And they're and they're right in the middle of the ring. So sting can't get the ropes or anything like that. So in theory, he could have just held on to this until the ref was forced to do something. But Regal just lets go. Then he like backs sting into the corner. Oh man, just uppercuts, forearms, open palms. He's just wailing away. And then Regal makes the big mistake. Regal does the backhand to Sting. Mm-hmm. And that it's like the 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 way it plays out is excellent cuz it's like that's what really offended him in the first place. Right. That's why we have this match. He does it again. It wakes Sting right up. And Sting they have like a close up of him and it, all of his face paint's gone because he's just been beaten on, but he is pissed off. Like the the idea that he tries to throw that in this match. Mm-hmm. That he flips him around so Regal's in the corner, and Sting literally beats Regal to the mat. He just wails on him until he's down. And then Sting woos, and you can just tell like he's woken up. So he whips him into the rope, Regal into the opposite corner, goes for the Stinger splash. But uh, but it's like it's a weird thing. So Regal gets his knees up to block it. And, but I think Sting's like, no, we're going to the finish now. So that's going to have no effect. <laughs> so Regal tries to capitalize, but Sting just backdrops him and then just like rushes over, gets on the Scorpion and Deathlock. And it's the second he sits down, Regal taps out. Yep. So the thing is like well, this particular match, I ended up, ha- there was like a break or two when I was like doing the play by play. But by the end of it, I was exhausted. Yeah. Just writing up this play by play. I thought it went really well. It made Regal look pretty gr- good in defeat. He can stand up to like the best of them. Right. The only thing was that I didn't like is that Regal submitted so quickly. Um, it just it is essentially the first submission move put on Regal the whole match, and he immediately gives up. This is really the height of Regal's WCW career. Yeah. It se- you know he seems like he's on the way up. Uh, he gets to feud with Sting on a major pay-per-view. That's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing nothing builds on this. This is it, It's all kind of a slow descent from here until he'll, uh, as we see, and I don't think this is a big spoiler for people, but until he decides to leave the company for greener pastures. Yeah, and, and I think since we started with the Nitros, they they will give like these momentary pushes to guys that aren't like Sting, Luger, right. But that's it. There'll be a momentary push, but they just don't capitalize on it whatsoever. Yep. This is the moment where it's like you could capitalize on Regal being a big time. I think a and big time. And he doesn't heel. need to win. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. But it just they there's no follow up to him having this major program with their biggest franchise star. Yeah. Especially since like Regal just like had his way with him right. the whole time. And you could really play it off that like 
look, Regal made this this vital mistake. If he didn't do the backhand, he probably would have finished him off. So, but I thought, yeah, I thought it was a great match. It was really just like a physically just grinding out match. You got to see the whole spectrum of what Regal is capable of doing because we don't really need to see that with Sting. Like we're aware of what Sting does and right. what he doesn't do. But uh, yeah, I thought it was, a, this is probably like the best, like if you wanted to show someone Regal and WCW, this is probably the best match to show because you get the way he interacts so well with fans, uh, the way that he can control a match and just like, in the way that he applies submission moves just a little bit differently mm-hmm. or like adding the knee or just grinding the forearm and things like that. And so I really, yeah, I really enjoy the match. It's just, it's really, it's too bad that nothing really comes of it. After a promo for bash of the beach plays, Tony preposterously claims that a hundred thousand fans attended the bash at the beach last year. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that event is held uh, the one last year, anyway, literally outside on a beach. Yeah. Like, it's pretty much just people that walk up from, like, sunning themselves. A <laughs> hundred thousand. It's like um, it's like they found out what the, the typical attendance at the beach is on a day, and they're like, yeah, it's that number. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazed dog time, according to Dusty, <laughs> as we go to Michael Buffer for the ring introductions of our co-main event. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here at the WCW Great American Bash... It's time for the special Legends of the Gridiron versus Legends of the World of Wrestling. The tag team battle you've been waiting for. Wrestling fans, are you ready? Yeah, we are. Oh, Michael looked good in that, don't he? He always does. Clean shaven. Coming out first to the ring. The Legends of the World of Wrestling in the company of two of the world's loveliest ladies, Miss Elizabeth and the woman. Introducing first from Minneapolis, Minnesota, wearing black with silver letters and weighing 254 and one half pounds. He is one of the legendary horsemen Ladies and gentlemen, the enforcer, Arn And his partner, known around the world as one of the greatest legends of the 20th century in professional wrestling, from Charlotte, North Carolina, wearing green, trimmed with yellow, weighing 236 pounds, presenting the 13 time heavyweight champion of the world, the Nature Boy, Rick And now, ladies and gentlemen, their head coach. For four decades, he's been a wrestling champion, a manager, a broadcaster, another legend from the world of wrestling, head coach Bobby the Brain. Peter. 
from the broadcast booth back to where he really made his name, Bobby the Brain Heenan with Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, and the beautiful ladies. Like him or not, talk about him all the time. We have our differences. He drove men to be champions, teams to be champions. Game plans were laid out by this man. He truly is in a class by himself. But will he be able to compete with his own slot? We're going to find out, fans. The Horseman in a show of unity already with Chris Benoit. Are you ready? And now, the legends of the gridiron. First by way of the Texas Longhorns to the Super Bowl champion Chicago Bears. An All-American, an All-Pro. He's six feet two, and he weighs 261 and three-quarter pounds from Austin, Texas, number 76, Steve McMichael. And his partner by way of Auburn University, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and now the Carolina Panthers, also an All-American. And all pro, six feet three, 263 and one half pounds. Now living in Charlotte, North Carolina, number 91, Mean Kevin Green. And coming to the ring, their head coach, one of the all-time legends, former heavyweight champion of the world, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Now, we haven't talked about Buffer on the podcast before, and... Uh, Due to time restrictions, I'm not going to give a full intro to him right now and kind of his deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so suffice it as a sort of interim holder until I, I give a full story at him later. He'll come in, uh, do ring intros for WCW's main events. He's from the world of boxing. He's very famous for his boxing ring introductions, namely his catchphrase, let's get ready to rumble. Yeah. Out first is Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Woman and Liz. Woman and Liz are radiant in black dresses. Flair asks them to show off the backs, and they do so uh, smiling as some pyro goes off. So I guess he's a little more convincing than Arn Anderson. Who he, is <laughs> he's always more convincing than <laughs> Arn Anderson. <laughs> Flair is somewhat subdued uh, by his standards, but uh, he is exuding confidence. Heenan gets his very own ring introduction loaded with plaudits from Buffer, uh, but among the accolades Buffer claims uh, for Heenan is that he was a wrestling champion. And though Bobby did work a bit as a wrestler early in his career, I could not find any record of, of titles that he won. Uh, but it is cool that he gets his own intro. They make a big deal mm-hmm. out of Bobby the Brain Heenan being the coach for, for the horseman here. Dusty also puts Brain over huge as well. And they did a, a great job of making him look like an important aspect of this match, which I think will really pay off uh, as we'll see at the end. Oh, yeah. This this also reminds me, you know, I was talking earlier about this, like, this whole, like, rushed for time, like, what's going on here. So, Michael Buffer was in the ring before Sting's music ended. Oh, wow. Once that last match ended, both those guys were gone in, like, yeah. seconds. Yeah. And 
it just kind of struck me as like the the pacing was really weird. Some generic country music plays as Buffer begins his intro for Mongo. Deborah and Kevin Green's wife come out first, and Deborah has Pepe, who I didn't even know that I missed until I saw him. <laughs> she also is like, she's like showcasing him, like <laughs> yes. like throw, like holding him up and all over the place, like she, like he's a championship. He has a costume on, but we never get a close enough shot to see exactly what it is. Mongo glad hands on his way to the ring, handing out something to people. I can't tell what, but based on size, I'm guessing maybe football cards. <laughs> Coke. <laughs> Little packets of Coke. <laughs> uh, some garbage bounces off Kevin Green. And at the, around that time, I noticed that the lyrics to the song say something about WCW, McMichael and Green. <laughs> so it's actually a song that they commissioned and recorded for this entrance for one match. <laughs> Fantastic. Savage is introduced. Uh, he gets like Bobby the Brain. He gets his own introduction with a huge reaction. The Baltimore crowd is very behind Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah. Even though they like the the Four Horsemen. Tony says that Macho Man is being reinstated for in-ring competition tomorrow night on Nitro as he had met the demands of the executive committee, sought counseling, and the fans have demanded his return. Uh, according to Dave Meltzer, it's actually because they are a little panicked about the ratings. <laughs> That'd be great if they just said that. <laughs> Green and Mongo psych each other up with some kind of football kata thing. Like they just do drills where they're like pushing up and rolling around. And yeah, it's, it's dumb. Yeah, you could you could tell the fans are not digging it either. Mongo and Orange circulate each other to start off as some fans unfurl a huge Mongo suck sign <laughs> right on the hard camera. It takes like five guys to hold this thing up. It's written on like a bed sheet. And they, they don't like block anyone's view for very long, but it's just right at the beginning of the match. Yeah. Mongo sucks. <laughs> and the thing is, he's never wrestled. <laughs> I, I like to assume that they're like, no, he's going to suck as a wrestler. They lock up and Arn powers Mongo into the corner. He backs up and taunts Mongo with some jumping jacks. They lock up again and Arn works the arm. Mongo reverses and hits an arm drag, which he releases too early, and then he bumps too early when Arn sweeps his leg out. Not huge botches by any means, but definitely a sign that he is both nervous and new to this. Mm-hmm. Tony shares a telling anecdote about Mongo. He says that he asked Mongo why Mongo uh, signed with the Green Bay Packers after his career in Chicago was done, um, because, you know, those are two huge rivals. Mm -hmm. uh, Mongo told Shivani that the answer was simple, money. Yeah. I, I like that he just kind of throws off this anecdote and yep. doesn't, like, focus on it. Yep. Arn and Mongo get into three-point stances and charge at each other. <laughs> Mongo bowls Arn over and uh, yells at Flair. Savage jumps up on the apron to offer some coaching to the footballers. We're getting a lot of stalling to start here, which is understandable, given that half of the participants have never wrestled before. Kevin Sullivan says that he went to Arn Anderson when planning out the show and said, how long can you give me? And Arn said, I can't do 30, but I'll get you 20. <laughs> so <That's> you, <laughs> see, you see a lot of stalling and mm -hmm. working the crowd kind of stuff, but to be clear, the crowd is on fire throughout this match. Yeah. Um, a little bit later, there's, they lose them at, at a bit, but for the most part, the crowd is very into this. And so when I talk about stalling or, or that kind of bullshit, if you take it in context, it's all fine. Mm -hmm. It's it's just me as a smarky guy 
long in the future when work rate is kind of viewed differently yeah. saying these things. But at the, everything they do is a very appropriate for the context. Yeah, and and you just consider like the the people that are in this match. It's Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. I mean, right? Those people. I mean, even when Ric Flair is just on the apron, he can keep the people fired up. Tony says he asked Mongo what he's good at besides football, and apparently Mongo said that he was a rattlesnake hunter in Texas. Exactly, says Dusty. We all are. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Mongo and Arn go to three-point stances again and charge a second time, but this time Arn dodges and hits a drop toehold. He whips Mongo into the corner and charges, but Mongo gets a foot up. It doesn't look like Arn gets within six inches of the boot, but he sells it anyway. And that would be on Arn, not on Mongo. Right. Um, I, I love the fact that when Arn got the drop toehold, like the fans exploded. Yeah, yes. Because I was like, no matter what generation it is, there's always going to be diehard fans that do not like the celebrity stuff. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he outsmarted him with like a classic wrestling move, and the fans just went crazy for it. Mongo then comes off the second rope with a big shoulder tackle. Flair makes a half-hearted attempt to come in and interfere, but is intimidated back to the outside by Mongo. Dusty points out that Arn is in there first to test out what Mongo has, rather than put Flair in any jeopardy. Dusty says some weird shit, but uh, that's, again, that's one of his great additions to commentary. Yeah. You know, that's Arn's role is to get in there and, okay, we've never seen Mongo before. Before I let Flair fight him, I'm going to make sure that he's not really a danger to Flair. <laughs> right. Mongo and Arn brawl in the corner of the NFL guys, and Arn punches Green. Arn then bumps to nothing, really. He just kind of bumped down. I think somebody was supposed to do something that they missed, and Arn just sold. Just went with it. Yeah. Green comes in the ring, and he and Mongo stomp Arn for a while. Arn rolls to the outside, and while the ref tries to get Green out of the ring, Macho hits a cheap shot to Arn, which the crowd loves. The heels huddle with Brain a bit before Arn returns to the ring. Mongo tags in Kevin Green, who still has his idiotic mustache and braided rat tail combination that we've mentioned before. <laughs> Green is fired up and screams at the wrestlers before doing some push-ups and some football drill-looking thing. Yeah. I will say, before we dissect any of Green's performance, uh, that multiple sources, including Kevin Sullivan and reports from Dave Meltzer, state that Kevin Green trained incredibly hard for this match showing up to the power plant every day that he could when he didn't have football commitments. He took this match very seriously, and he wanted to put in a good performance. And absolutely nobody that I found says that Mongo lacked any effort or motivation, but it is notable to me how they single out Green for working very hard and being there every day. So it's not that anyone says anything negative about Mongo, mm -hmm. but it's like you just hear this singular praise for Kevin Green, and you're like, well, did Mongo... Maybe they talk about it differently because Mongo was training to be a full-time wrestler, so they're just... That's kind of a different... You know, Kevin Green was doing this before he went back into another season in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, like, since Mongo is trying is working to become a professional wrestler that like anything he does well is is to be expected right. whereas like kevin green with this like one-time appearance it could be expected that he could just be terrible but the fact that he worked really hard they're like yeah that's we appreciate the fact that he took it very seriously rick flair finds the whole thing cute as he gets tagged in and prance struts a huge arc across half the ring flair entertainingly kills some time mocking macho the crowd kevin green 
Flair invites Green to go into a three-point stance, and Green does, earning himself a kick to the back of the hair from Flair for his stupidity. <laughs> we just saw Arn use that three-point stance as a lure five minutes ago. It seems dumb to fall for it right away. Well, it's a different guy falling for it, though. <laughs> Flair lays in with punches and chops in the corner until Green shoves him, which Flair sells by doubling over backward in a couple of somersaults. It's sort of like Shawn Michaels selling for Hogan at Survivor Series 2005, <laughs> but not as bad. <laughs> as Flair gets to his feet, Green explodes with a shoulder tackle and then hits another on the enforcer who tries to enter the ring. He struts in a cruel mockery of the Nature Boy, uh, which the director of the show mitches pretty much entirely. They cut away from it almost right away. Flair is livid at this provocation and he stomps a tantrum halfway up the aisle before comically marching like my five-year-old when he's told to go to his room <laughs> he makes it about 90 percent of the way to the curtain before he's attacked by the macho man macho walks flair back to the ring in a headlock and tosses him in randy anderson sees this and does nothing which kind of makes sense given how much randy anderson hates rick flair like in kayfabe yeah so i actually was kind of willing to go with that Back in the ring, Kevin Green whips Flair into the ropes and gets him up for a sky-high back body drop. Green hits a pair of shoulder tackles and tags in Mongo. Flair drops to his knees and begs Mongo for mercy, as the announcers remind us that the reason this match is happening, it really all started uh, several months ago with Flair hitting on Deborah on multiple occasions. Yes, that's right. Flair eventually nuts up and comes off the ropes at Mongo, who no-sells as Flair crashes into him and bumps to the mat, before popping up and doing the same again. With Flair in the corner now, Mongo approaches only to get kicked in the gut. So then he tries the exact same thing with the exact same result. Huh. <laughs> Flair then moves him into the corner, which takes a moment as he's in Mongo's ear clearly giving him instructions, <laughs> presumably on what spot is next. <laughs> right. Flair chops Mongo hard and Mongo no-sells. In fact, he screams at Flair to do it again and then he no-sells again. Flair lays in with punches with no effect. Mongo backs Flair into the opposite corner and nails chops of his own before executing an okay hip toss. Mongo gets an Irish whip and a back body drop. As Flair gets back into it with an eye gouge, Tony mentions that Jay Leno nicknamed Green Shallow Grave Kevin Green. <laughs> Dusty is confused by this nickname and Tony doesn't really offer a reason. Like Tony, it is a confusing nickname and D Dusty's right to question it and Tony gives him nothing. And then Dusty pretends that he doesn't know who Jay Leno is and says that he, Leno would be lucky if Dusty would give him a nickname. <laughs> he then brags about giving Tanae the nickname of Iron Mike earlier, which Iron Mike is like the most common nickname for guys named Mike. <laughs> right. Tony tries his best to just go back to the action where Flair has now ascended the top rope for a Phoenix splash. No, just kidding. Mongo throws him to the mat. Phoenix Mongo poses a bit as Dusty implores him to pretend that Flair is John Elway and sack him. But instead of acting like a football player, Mongo acts like a wrestler and gets a figure four on Flair. And though it's not picture perfect, it is noticeably better than when Hulk Hogan tries it. Yeah. Oh, but um, when he said the John Elway comment. Yeah. And then uh, Tony Schiavone said, or maybe it should be uh, Troy Aikman. And Dusty's like, oh, don't come at me with that. Yeah. <laughs> He, I suppose he'd be a Cowboys fan. <laughs> right. Yeah. He immediately is like, don't even try that comment. <laughs> Arn tries to come in and break it up, but Green barrels into him with a shoulder tackle. Green then locks a figure four of his own on Arn. Woman quickly attacks the eyes of Mongo, freeing Flair. 
Deborah and Tara Green go and confront Woman and Liz. Woman and Liz advance on them, and the NFL wives meekly run away up the ramp, disappearing to the back. Back in the ring, Flair has helped Arn escape the figure four. He just leaves the ring, and everyone apparently forgets that Arn isn't the legal man as he goes to work on Mongo. Which is fair, because I also forgot who the legal <laughs> man was. Arn works over Mongo with some stomps before tagging in Flair once more. Flair tosses Mongo to the outside, and Green is meant to come in to distract the ref so that Arn can attack Mongo, only Green has blown his cue and came in way too early. So now Randy Anderson has to warn him for coming into the ring when he's not trying to come into the ring. Uh, but when he realizes what's happening, he starts trying to come into the ring. So he fucked up, but actually as soon as he gets what's going on, he's like, oh shit, and he, he, he can follow the lead a little bit. Yeah. Again, it's not something horribly noticeable unless you're using a critical eye and a pause button here far in the future. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. With the heels in control of this match, Tony credits the game plan cooked up by Bobby Heenan of letting the footballers do their football moves and turning things into their favor. It's fortuitous timing as we see Heenan nail a kick to a prone McMichael outside the ring, uh, which pisses off the Macho Man. Yes. So it's, it works really well unintentionally. He's talking about how great Brain is, and then Brain gets in there and starts getting physical, which mm -hmm. is not something Bobby does that often. No, I mean, especially not in WCW. I mean, I know. Because he's got that neck surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back in the middle of the ring, Flair gets Mongo with chops that only serve to wake Mongo up again. Flair drops to his knees and nails a low blow as Arn distracts Randy Anderson. Flair hits a rolling knee as Dusty and Tony agree that the fight is over. Flair tags in Arn, who remains in control with some basic brawling. Arn and Flair get a double suplex on Mongo for the first pin attempt of the match, which gets a two. Mongo clotheslines Flair, and Macho gets the crowd fired up for a hot tag to Green, but Arn cuts it off with kick-punch action. Eventually, Mongo gets an atomic drop on Arn, who crashes into Flair. Mongo finally gets the tag to Green, and Green comes in with a couple of chalk blocks to Arn's legs and a sloppy scoop slam on Flair. He follows it up with a much better scoop slam on Anderson. He gets a power slam on Flair, and for the first time, I'd have to say that the crowd is starting to die down a little bit. For whatever reason, the hot tag kind of loses them. Oh, sure. Maybe it's just because the football guys are taking over and they're, you know, a little more on the horseman side. This is kind of a long match for what it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Flair gets whipped into the corner and does his big up and over the top rope bit where he then walks into a Mongo big boot on the apron. Bigfoot Mongo, declares Tony, <laughs> which delights Dusty, who repeats the <laughs> phrase several times. <laughs> Green brings Flair back into the ring with a vertical suplex. He celebrates with a very goofy little dance until Arn chop blocks the back of his knee. The heels then go to work on Kevin Green's knee. Flair goes for a figure four, but Green rolls him up for a two. Flair hits a knee breaker but th and then locks on the figure four. His, the uh, the small package from the figure four, actually, he did a pretty good job at he that. He did. He really did. Considering lots of people fucked that up. The announcers say that Kevin Green should tap out to the figure four right away because he's in danger of ending his football career to a serious knee injury. I loved it. I thought that was a great angle for them to play up here. Yeah, and, and I I think earlier on in the match, too, Tony mentioned how the Carolina Panthers are likely watching this very closely. Right. That might have been right when they started working on his knee, too. So adding that aspect to it of like the the idea that Kevin Green might give up early to protect his his football career. It is a, it's a good aspect to the match. Arn is on the outside of the ring helping Flair gain nonsensical leverage on the hold. Macho Man runs over to attack Arn and Chris Benoit sprints to ringside to fend off Macho. They stomp on uh, Savage when suddenly the camera cuts the aisle. Macho Man down, Kevin Green 
still in a situation out there. Hey, what is Kevin Green trying to turn this figure four over, but can he? Excuse me, what is this I, right I have, here? I have no idea. Who is that? Is that Deborah McMichaels? And she, she doesn't have the Bears uh, coat on. And what's, what's in the case? What is going on here? I have no idea. Mungo, what is going on here? Give me a break on this! What's he saying here? Those... Meanwhile, the figure four is still on here. What are they doing here? That's a four horseman shirt. And it's money! It's a lot of money! It's, boy, is that ever... Oh, give me a break, Mike Michaels! Use your head here! That was a $100. Kevin Green in the middle of the ring with a lot of pain, blues, and agony putting on him. Just turned it over. He's looking for a tag. Look, Kevin Green looking for a tag. Screaming for Mongo. Mongo, drop it. Mongo! He hit Kevin Green. What the hell is going on here? Kevin Green is out. One, two, three. Unbelievable. What the, the hell ring. happened here? The That's unbelievable. Ring, I can't believe it. Led by their head coach, the Bobby Heenan, the Nature Boy, Rick Flair, well, the infamous Macho Man getting his mix in, but Steve McMichael going after the Macho Man, Randy Savage. What is, look at this. And Kevin Green is still out. Arn Anderson, Rick Flair, stomping the Macho Man. Steve McMichael's got the case full of money. It's loaded with money and a horseman's shirt. And there are four of them in the ring. Don't tell me what is going on here. Heenan calling the shots. Oh, the Halliburton to the head. Ladies and gentlemen, Take we have seen a startling, shocking development unbelievable. here. Unbelievable. I give up on this. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Apparently, Steve McMichael, the only thing I can say is call it from what I see it, apparently Steve McMichael. No! If he, oh, get loose from that! With the money is the fourth horseman. Where Woman and Liz are coming back to the ring accompanied by a smiling Deborah McMichael who has traded in her uh, Bears Letterman jacket for a sparkly pink dress. Liz is carrying a briefcase. Yeah, so here's the thing. Yeah? So, like, the women all go back, go to the back, have a conversation that involves Deborah changing clothes too yep, yep. so I, I just you're, you're saying it um projects a little bit too much what's coming <laughs> maybe a little and, and also that like we missed on some very alluring action backstage <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> also what happened to tara green what did they do to her she could be lying in a pool of her own blood <laughs> as far as we know and we never find out no one ever we investigates don't. we don't <laughs> She's just gone. As the, as the women finally get to ringside, Deborah takes the case from Liz and approaches her husband. He opens the case, which is filled with $100 bills and a Four Horsemen t-shirt. Take it and stop this, says Deborah. Mongo inspects the money, holding up a bill to the light to make sure he can see the little <laughs> watermark or whatever. I guess Mongo's been burned by counterfeiters before. <laughs> That seems like the least surprising thing. It seems like the kind of thing that a guy who does a bunch of coke deals would know how to <laughs> right. do. His first reaction <laughs> is to make sure it's legitimate money. Green has now managed to turn the figure four over and get to the ropes where he begs for Mongo's aid. Mongo takes the suitcase and waffles his partner in the back. Mm -hmm. The announcers are apoplectic as Flair covers Green for the victory. Savage gets to the ring and beats on Flair, but Mongo jumps in and shoves Macho off. 
The horsemen go to work on Savage. Mongo holds Randy as Flair brains him with the suitcase. Mongo puts on the horseman t-shirt as Tony declares that he is clearly the fourth horseman. The horsemen, their women, and Bobby, who put this all together, celebrates in the ring. Mongo shakes Heenan's hand and Tony is disgusted as Dusty is just now realizing that the brain set all of this up. (laughs) Well, I mean, that part I don't entirely get because the impression I got when they went backstage was like that that deal struck then. I agree. But I think so. I think here's here's they don't spell it out, but I assume that the plan was let's try to beat them. Yeah. And if it is not going the way that we want it to go, th- we'll come up. This is our backup. So I think they scared sure. them into the back uh, and then convinced Deborah as, you know, it was th- it was their plan B, essentially, to just beating them and laughing. Yeah. And, and like we mentioned before, as far as that, the, the, the anecdote at the beginning, because it takes Mongo about five seconds to betray his like best friend. And right. immediately be a four horseman. He's like game for the everything after that. Yeah, he immediately attacks Savage. He shakes Bobby's hand when they did nothing but bicker at each other when they were on commentary together. He yeah. is, once he's on board, he is on board. Yeah. You know, it's something else that they don't clearly explain that I think, at least this is how the, I took it, I think the money in the briefcase is Macho Man's money. I think that's, you know, the source of, you know, the horsemen have been spending sure. all that money. Yeah. And I think it makes the most sense and does a good job continuing the storyline and, and keeping his involvement. If mm-hmm. it's his money that they gave to buy out Mongo and get him into the horsemen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I honestly, I don't know how it plays off after that, but it'd be interesting to see if they bring that up like the next night because they don't say anything like that during this pay-per-view. But um, also I, I made a note is like right when, when Flair got the pin he clearly did like this hand cover up where, where he was like checking, like talking to Kevin Green, like to make sure oh, he was sure. okay. Yeah. But, it, and I was like, that's like a really, it's like a kind of a classy thing to do, but it's like, it just looks very obvious that he's checking on the guy that he really wants to beat. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a huge level of trust that was placed in Arn Anderson and Ric Flair mm-hmm. to be in there with a guy who is signed to an NFL team. Yeah. I mean, we said this before, there's no way this would be allowed now. In fact, it specifically has not been allowed when Pac-Man Jones tried the, and he was on suspension for a year when he tried it. Yeah, and they were, and and when he was around, it was basically like, it was like we're angry that he's even in the ring, right? Not even doing anything, just in the ring. So, um, I mean, just the fact that Flair and Arn were trusted with that and got Kevin Green through unscathed is amazing. Uh, regardless of anything that comes after this, and I'm not saying that in a negative, I don't know what comes after this, mm-hmm. uh, but regardless of what anything that comes after, this angle was excellently booked. Yeah. The turn of Elizabeth, the stuff with Macho Man's money, his involvement, Heenan's involvement, who orchestrated the plot, Deborah's involvement, and, and her and Flair's dynamic, the whole thing is all these disparate elements that came together in this one match mm-hmm. and paid off in a fantastic angle and the filling out of a missing spot in the horseman ranks. Yeah. I just thought, obviously the wrestling wasn't an A+. This is not a five-star wrestling match. Right. But it was entertaining as hell. Mm-hmm. Nobody fucked up that bad. Anything that was fucked up was not fucked up that bad. Yeah. The footballers hit a lot of moves, and some of them were good. I mean, there was vertical suplexes, power slam, scoop slam, hip toss, figure four. And amazingly, most of the moves were done by Kevin Green, who is not the one sticking around to be a wrestler. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, that I guess that does show you like who was kind of like picking up on it a little bit quicker, right. but <laughs> but I would say I mean this was just exceptionally well done. Yeah. Kudos to all involved, the creative team and all the guys involved in the match and the women involved in the match and Heenan, mm-hmm. uh, Macho Man. It was just incredible. I thought it was great. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. And another thing that I didn't appreciate until I saw it this time was like the way that Deborah sold the whole thing too. Like she was game for that. Like, yeah, the absolutely. whole idea and like and and she was basically like, "Ah, look at all the money we have now." Yeah, she plays the character perfectly. Uh, and Deborah is, uh, you know, I'm familiar more with her work um, in WWF where she was terrible. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so just to see her and like be impressed, I I yeah. thought she was great. And I and I think when you were talking about like if that if like her coming out, like the way that she came back out was like foreshadowing. I suppose that's okay because that shows that Deborah's on board, but doesn't necessarily show that Mongo's on board. But like, th- like you were saying, like you they did a pretty good job of having the camera in the right place where you could catch a lot of the conversation. Right. And that they, there wasn't like this kind of like stumbling, like repeating yourself or anything like that, which kind of happens a lot. Um, I, yeah, I thought it played off really well. And I, and I also just, I love the idea that like when you give Mongo money, he will do anything for money. You know, he was, he was a hundred. Oh, I'm a horseman now. Okay. Fuck these other guys. <laughs> yeah, yes. Everything about it. Just like, and, and, and like what you said earlier, like the foreshadowing of Tony Schiavone mentioning playing for the green Bay Packers. There's not a whole lot of angles that you have like a very definitive, like climatic moment to it. Right. And this one did, and it played off really, really well. So, I mean, despite like the wrestling or despite like maybe uh, they might have taken a long time to get to this point. It played off well in the end. The ends justify the means. Well, this show is moving at a breakneck pace because these guys are still in the ring when we go to Eric Bischoff, who is just at the top of the entrance ramp. <laughs> right. And they just they shoot him at an angle where these guys can like leave from behind the camera and we won't see them. Mm-hmm. But at one point early on in his talking, you actually see Bischoff kind of like look over and like nod like he's kind of. I don't know who it is, yeah. but he's like, you know, hi there, Kevin Green or whatever as the guys are leaving. <laughs> right. Sucks to be you, Kevin Green. Thanks, guys. Incredible turn of events, to say the very least. Well, many of you know that for the last several weeks, since uh, May 27th, as a matter of fact, we've had a number of, let's just call them interruptions on Nitro. I know, I know, I know. And if you were with us last week, I pointed out that tonight, these guys want an answer. We're prepared right now to give them an answer. They know who they are. I know they're here. Come on out, guys. That's what you're here for. But we've got some questions we've got to resolve before we do all that. Right off the bat, I want to let you know, right here, right now, I was in the WCW offices, debated 
You want a match, you want a war, you want it inside of the ring, you're gonna get it. They fell into the trap, big man. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I got some couple considerations here. Before we go a whole lot further, I will tell you it'll be at Bash at the Beach, July 7th in Daytona. I'm free. I'm but free. before we go any further, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go any further, let's clear one thing up. Do you work for the WWE? No. How about it? No. Forget about the past, Chico. Let's worry about the future. We want to know who your three guys are. Is it, is it the uh, Nacho Man? I don't think so. And what about, what about the immortal Huckster? You know, you tell billionaire Ted to break out the money and get anybody you can because the big man and the medium-sized man and our surprise buddy are gonna carve them up. I wanna ask you a question right now. He's had his say. Who are they, man? Who are they? Come I on. can't tell you. I'll tell you tomorrow night on Nitro. That's the deal. You can't tell us? You don't jack us around, don't jack us around. Oh, for Whoa! What are they doing? Security! Damn, get up there right now. For oh, for oh. Get security up there. Unbelievable. Please. Please get it. Unbelievable. This is sick. Yeah. Tony, I got it. They I, should they, Hold on. Where's the at? He's right down below us here. Oh my God. We're, we're gonna need some medical attention right now. Yes. Right now, ladies and gentlemen. Big boys. They just left the building. Hey, get these guys off here. Cut this thing off. Get some, what, what they Can we have up? some medical? This is sick. Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff says that he's prepared to give the guys who have been interrupting the show an answer. They know who they are, says Bischoff, as WCW still has not given them a name. In fact, WCW still hasn't settled on what they're going to be calling these two. Uh, as you can't call them Razor and you can't call them Diesel, mm -hmm. but they're not they're not sure what they're going to do. They actually did have a list of uh, gimmick names drawn up. Eventually, obviously, we know they go with Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, but that was they had other things under consideration. But for the moment, they're just content to let the audience fill in the blanks. That makes the most sense for for their mm -hmm. plan. Wait, uh, do, does anyone have that list? Did you see a list? I've never seen a list. I just, uh, I remember it was, it got brought up as part of the lawsuit that happens between, that's been going on over the last couple of weeks with WWF suing them over this. And um, a big part of WWF's contention is that you're allowing the audience to assume that they're Razor and Diesel and you won't name them. And WCW claims, no, we have a list of gimmick names. We're waiting for them to get like clearance from our legal and trademark departments. Oh, sure. And I think as part of that, I don't know if they had to provide that list or not. So at least they claim that they have a list. That'd be interesting to see. I, I just I wonder what they with like big names like that that they have to rename what they would go with. It, they, yeah, big big uh, no large father neat. I don't know. Or. <laughs> <laughs> No, like uh, cut Scott you Ortiz, <laughs> <laughs> or like the uh, 
Paul refers to them as the big man and no, the big size man and the medium size. Yeah, man. yeah. <laughs> you just do that. Hall and Nash saunter out, playing to the crowd with their cool heel shtick. And their fucking terrible clothes. Yeah, too. they're 90s ass, like tapered jeans. And It's just like, oh, here comes Kevin Nash with his like polo shirt and <laughs> jeans. And like, and I swear, for any sort of like garment you can have, yeah. Scott Hall wears it in jeans. Yes, that's true. Both men dwarf Bischoff. Mm-hmm. It's easy to, I, I think I've even mentioned this before. Um, but it's easy to forget how big Scott Hall is because of how big Kevin Nash is. Yeah. Scott Hall's a big fucking guy. Yeah. And I and I thought, like, initially, like, they did a really good job of having the guys on either either side of him. Yes. Like, he is in a corner. He Like, these are the two bullies coming out to have their way with the guy. Bullies is exactly the right word because Hall gives him, like, a shoulder rub in, like, a playful way. But it's clearly, like... I could snap you like a twig. It's like a bully does when they're pretending yeah. to be your friend for a couple minutes or whatever. Yeah, well, like when you get like the guy like rubs your hair or whatever. Yep, yep. You're just a little boy to me. Yeah. You know? Bischoff says that before he gives an answer, there are some questions that need resolving. But then he does give them an answer and say they'll get the three versus three match they wanted July 7th at Bash at the Beach. Bischoff then asks Nash if he works for the WWF. No, replies Nash. And Hall says the same. This was done directly in response to a lawsuit brought by the WWF over Nash and Hall, Medusa's throwing the belt in the trash, and that one time when Bischoff had tried to claim that the Nitro went out on, uh, the power went out on Nitro due to the, quote, competition. Oh, sure. So because of that, they're just, they want to go on and say, look, we're stating for beyond a shadow of a doubt, these guys do not work for the WWF. And for good measure, we'll see this, uh, exact segment replayed on nitro the following night so it's not only done on pay-per-view but it's done where more eyes are going to see it on Mm -hmm. nitro and i thought that they played off the question really well too all things considered that they have to like stand there and say we don't work for a wwf uh nash said no like like he said it like no no, why would i do that they do such a great job of making it so short to the point and then moving the fuck on mm-hmm. that you almost like forget it happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then because then Scott Hall says, listen, we're not here to talk about what's in the past. Yep. Right now we want to know if you're going to accept our challenge. He moves it right on to the next part. So the fact that like they had this burden of having to answer this question on TV, I thought they did it as well as possible. You also might notice that Scott Hall has toned his Hispanic accent way down. Yes. <laughs> uh, so he's doing it a little bit, but it definitely a lawyer could now make the argument that he clearly is distinguishing the way that he speaks from the way that Razor Ramon spoke. <laughs> just, I just wish he, he would have gone back to that the diamond stud mustache. <laughs> Hall asks who the three guys are going to be. The Nacho Man, the Immortal Huckster. Bischoff tries to ask Nash something, but Hall interrupts and asks again who the WCW3 will be. Bischoff says that he'll tell them tomorrow on Nitro, and Hall gets angry at this and punches Eric in the gut. Nash then picks him up and jackknife powerbombs Bischoff through a large table that's been set up next to the stage to a huge pop from the crowd. Yes. (laughs) Hall then declares that the real big boys have just left the building. Shivani and Dusty call for medical attention. Tony calls Bischoff the host of Nitro and noticeably mentions that Bischoff is the executive producer of WCW. Bischoff does a full stretcher job, staying motionless the entire time. 
Dusty says that the situation has exculated into a real all-out <laughs> war. <laughs> this is another great angle that comes across very, very well. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, definitely. Yeah, and, you know, kudos to Bischoff. Yes. Because if there's if there's a more dangerous move to take, it's the Kevin Nash lazy ass. <laughs> I know a lot of times people refer to it as the power drop. Yes. <laughs> and he nearly murders Bischoff because he just lets go of him and he almost like goes like head first. Yeah, he actually uh, Bischoff says in Controversy Creates Cash, his autobiography, that Nash almost missed the target, but at the last minute noticed because he can't see because Bischoff's in front of his eyes. Mm-hmm. But at the last second, he made an adjustment and was able to send Bischoff through. And Bischoff actually takes a little bit of the responsibility, saying that he didn't want to rehearse. So they had not rehearsed that spot at all. Uh, so that was the first time they were trying it was right out there. I, I, I could see the point of that, especially like if he gets injured during the rehearsal, that fucks up everything. Oh, yeah. Um, and also, I mean, as far as like hitting that target, for one thing, the like the the table area is like covered with a I think like the Great American Bash logo, and it's hard to tell exactly where the prop begins. Yeah, and also it's like it's just like the lighting's really bad there too. Like you can barely, you can't really see him landing until like they bring a camera light on it. So between the cruiserweights and the tag match. And the horseman angle mm-hmm. and the street fight mm-hmm. and that angle that we just saw and even Sting Regal. Uh, how much do you not envy the Giant and Lex Luger <laughs> for their main event match that's coming right now? You know, once um, that tag team match that with the NFL guys re- yeah. started, I was like, this was one of those pay-per-views where the world title match probably shouldn't have ended. I show. have that exact note. Yeah. This is, I, I'm a big proponent of the world title should be the main event, mm-hmm. but you've got to have exceptions or you're going to kill your guys unintentionally. Yeah. And that, I, that kind of happens here. Mm-hmm. Tony goes to check on Eric, leaving Dusty to vamp a bit on his own. Uh, the best bit is when he says, Eric Bischoff, like him or not, driving him through a table, that's uncalled for. And, <laughs> On du- like in WCW kayfabe, everyone likes Eric Bischoff. He's just a play-by-play announcer. Yeah. So to say like him or not is like acknowledging that in the greater wrestling world, a lot of people think he's a fucking dickhead. Right. <laughs> I think that's pretty hilarious. And I also like the fact when we see Dusty, it's like, yep, three hours is too long for the jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, he is down to the t-shirt now. Yeah, but um, I mean, the fact that like uh, Dusty was kind of left on his own for a bit here yeah. while um, Tony went to check on Eric Bischoff, like he did a really good job of being like, you know what, if they're going to war against all of us now. Right. And and I think that's one of the things of why this segment worked really well is it, it because Hall and Nash could have just been like wrestlers that want to come in and win championships and stuff like that. But instead they attack like the, 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 like the authority structure of WCW right? in a way that's like, obviously you might never wrestle for them. You might go to jail tonight for what you did, but they didn't care. Their whole intention was just to fuck up WCW. And I, and I think like doing this, Especially at the time, because we're talking about like we're like nearly two years away from or like a year away from Vince McMahon taking bumps. Right. And and so we we just we never saw anything like uh, a a non wrestler like this get attacked like that. And so when you kind of like when I put it in perspective, I'm like, that was 
fucking crazy that yeah. they did that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Especially since like Bischoff, I I I can't even remember the, a time when he was like even in the ring, just talking. Right. So you 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 don't expect him to get into a physical confrontation, especially like when this interview starts. He's so small compared right. to those. Yep. You wouldn't expect these guys to to do something like that. But uh yeah, I mean that segment, it's it's short, but like every note they wanted to hit, they just like nailed it. Dusty either gets emotional or trails off. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. <laughs> but Lex Luger's music hits and Dusty throws it to Dave Penzer. After a moment of silence, Dusty corrects himself and instead throws it to Michael Buffer. And I like to imagine that in that moment, Buffer was refusing to speak unless Dusty <laughs> clarified. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but there's actually kind of some more confusion as it's just silence uh, for a while because for this match, and he'll he'll actually do this a lot in championship matches, Buffer doesn't do the introductions until both guys are in the ring. Oh, so yeah. he's like, take it away, Michael Buffer. But Michael Buffer won't be speaking for like three more minutes. Yeah. Lex is out first, and he hops off the ramp to check on Bischoff, who is still being attended to by medical staff. He doesn't care that much, though, as he just kind of hops down, looks over, and is like, oh, that sucks, and then walks right. to the ring. Yeah, I thought about that, and I was like, you know, he could. there's only so much he could do instead, unless they were going to go with, like, the, the show doesn't go on sort of deal. Right. And, and he was. I felt like he was there long enough where they're like, there's nothing you could do, Lex. You should just go on with your match. So I no, I didn't think it was like a terrible thing to. It would have been weirder if he just ignored it. The lights lower and the Dungeon of Doom music plays as Tony returns to the booth. Tony says he's concerned about Bischoff's neck and spine, but that Eric would want them to continue. Giant makes his way to the ring, accompanied by Jimmy Hart. When he gets to the ring, Buffer finally does his ring introductions. The giant's eyes are swollen and red, and it looks like he has not slept in weeks. <laughs> it looks like he is just partying way too hard, enjoying this new lifestyle, because he's still <laughs> new to this business. You yeah. Know? Tony reminds us of the storyline where Lex kept missing his matches with the giant, which is so funny to think about in retrospect, because now in kayfabe, they were all legitimate excuses. It seemed like at the time, because he was doing the tweener thing, yeah. that he was like, oh, is he just like, is he being cowardly and he's making excuses to sting? Mm -hmm. But now that he's full-fledged babyface, like, it's sort of been retconned as in like, no, he would just had like amazingly coincidentally bad travel luck. Right. <laughs> the announcers worry that Lex is going to be too distracted by his concern for Eric Bischoff to win this match. And Nick Patrick rings the bell and here to call all of the action is our own Dave Amontorp. I also wanted to make a note that uh, when he came out to the ring, the giant didn't give a fuck about Eric Bischoff. Mm -mm. No. Uh, also, um, as it is with like any of these matches, they just it, you get the big match feel with uh, the Michael Buffer intros, um, which you should because uh, from what I've read, it's about twenty five thousand a night. That Michael Buffer does intros. I think it might even be more than that, honestly. But we'll we'll have to get that sometime when we talk about him in depth a little more. Yeah, and and so at this point, when they're introducing the giant, like being the the biggest like monster wrestler that there is, I I had the thought of like, you know, if they're gonna get guys to face Hall and Nash, wouldn't the giant be one of them? It seems like he would be like the most sizable opponent. Yes, Sullivan on his podcast actually says that his long-term vision 
for this whole NWO storyline mm-hmm. would be that the giant would be the baby face leading the WCW contingent. Okay. That was that was how he saw everything playing out. But ultimately, as it's a storyline at the top of the card, it's uh, more for Bischoff to control than for Sullivan. Yeah. Okay. So um, we we get the big big match intros by Buffer and the bell rings and and Luger and Giant are at opposing corners and both of them for some reason or another are hesitating to start. I mean I don't I don't really get like a grasp as to why that there was this hesitation, uh, but there was. And then Luger decides to just rush at the Giant and immediately gets a boot to the face and and Luger really not a smart move to just run full on at your opponent who is way bigger than you. Right. So Luger goes down in the mat and giant starts stomping away at him and then gets him back up. But when you Irish whips him into the ropes, Luger ducks a clothesline and starts punching away at his much larger adversary. A couple of clotheslines later and giant is spilling out to the ring. Even, and even though he lands on his feet, he gets him out of the ring, like within a minute of the match starting. So that's like, drastically different than it has been in the past. Uh, Luger is by the ropes, so Giant drags Luger outside, and then I'm pretty sure he wanted to, to press slam him over the top rope, but when he realized he couldn't do that, he threw him through the middle rope instead. So, it, it doesn't look like there's much strategy behind it, but I think there was like kind of a bigger play of throwing him over the top rope that just didn't work out. Giant returns to the ring, but gets a barrage of kicks and punches upon his entrance. Uh, Luger jumps uh, from the second rope onto the giant's back, but he falls off. Then he regains balance and jumps onto him in order to uh, apply a sleeper hold. I think he was trying to jump off the middle rope to get a sleeper, but he just kind of biffed it up. Right. At this point, I had the thought, if Luger had such a good plan of like keeping the giant off balance and trying to like get a sleeper hold in order to wear him out, then why the fuck did he start with a rushing attack? Yeah. That just it just <laughs> it just was a poor idea. As Luger holds onto the sleeper, uh, Jimmy Hart jumps onto the apron and he uh, feigns a megaphone attack onto the total package. However, Sting shows up and intercepts the mouse to the south, and he chases him to the back. While he's chasing him, the Luger pulls uh, no the giant pulls Luger onto his shoulder and rams him into the turnbuckle. Luger, I think, was supposed to kind of like fall down and land into the tree of woe. Yeah. But instead, he kind of hangs upside down like an idiot. I've never seen a tree of woe before where instead of hooking a leg under the thing, the guy just leaves his legs over the rope. It's like the the lazy man's tree of woe. Right. The tree of, like, moderate sadness. <laughs> it just... He's not being hung upside down by any means besides his, like, lack of will of getting out of that situation. <laughs> But regardless, he just hangs upside down like a dope while the giant kicks him. The giant whips Luger into the opposite corner, and now I realize we're at DEFCON 1 when it comes to Luger's shout selling for the match. (laughs) He is fucking loud in this match. He does love that. You're right. (laughs) The giant places his boot on Luger's throat in the corner, and a second corner whip is followed by a backbreaker, which the uh, giant, like, he holds on and presses on Lex on the back. Yeah. I imagine it would be quite painful. Yep. Giant picks Luger up for a shoulder breaker and displays an impressive amount of strength when he loses grip of Lex, but doesn't drop him. He just like powers him back up instead. Yep. yep. Giant drops Luger at that point and then applies a surfboard. This match noticeably kills the crowd. They start off somewhat hot, mm-hmm. which is impressive given how much they've seen. Yeah. You'd think they'd be spent, but they start off pretty hot, but slowly through this match, 
especially with the giant on offense, mm-hmm. they are drained to be very, very quiet. When it's like the proverbial David versus Goliath, you're excited about like the little guy getting attacking the big guy, seeing right. if he can drop the big guy. You don't want to see the big guy methodically beating on his opponent for minutes right, on end. Right. So Giant gets tired of the surfboard and picks Luger up. But Lexa hits a jawbreaker, and then Luger tries to body slam the Giant, and he has him up for the body slam, but the Giant lands atop of him for a two count. This match doesn't have nearly the excitement as a previous hour had, but yep. that was a very impressive previous hour, too. Yeah, it's like I said, I just don't... They had to know going into this... You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would not want to be either of those guys mm-hmm. walking out to do this match. And I and I think really if if it was more of a common practice to not have the World Tom match last, they would have done it on this show. Right. But it's it's just like such a standard to do that that they're like, oh, okay, I guess that it's going to kind of go off on a whimper. But, you know, that's a title match. So that's where it goes. It gets a lot more exciting when the Giant stands on Lex Luger. The Giant picks up Luger and kind of like planks him. Lays him on the top turnbuckle yep, yep. and unloads with a uh, forearm smashes. Luger topples to the outside and more forearm smashes from the giant. But this is in the more the tradition of Sheamus hitting the chest like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is the first time Sheamus has ever been mentioned on our podcast. So that's that's always <laughs> and, a plus. Last. and last <laughs> and last. But Luger is able to counter when he uh, leaps into the ring with a drop kick. Which the giant must not have seen coming because <laughs> you never expect a Lex Luger dropkick. No, kick. no. And now, so Luger now does the uh, hitting moves, trying to knock the giant down, bunch of clotheslines and a forearm, which I thought was would have been a good t- point to mention the uh, the bionic forearm or whatever. But, oh, uh, yep, yep, but, the uh, loaded forearm. Yeah, but that wasn't brought up. But either way, the forearms couldn't knock him down. But then he, Luger hits a couple of uh, clips to the knee, and so the giant's down on one knee. And then we get like punch, 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 punch. <laughs> but the giant just shoves Luger away with one arm. At this point, Luger's in the corner, so the giant tries for the, the giant splash. But even Luger can avoid the most telegraphed move imaginable. <laughs> if he's at the other side, he should yep. probably get out of that corner. So now the giant is planked on the turnbuckle, and uh, Luger starts kicking him a bunch, in which they bring up a uh, field goal kicking with the Baltimore Ravens, which is like yeah, kind of a force, whatever. Yeah, but uh, they, it's like they had a leftover note about football from the last match that they hadn't used. <laughs> right. Uh, the last kick miraculously flips the giant onto his. <laughs> yep. But it's like. The giant really has to kind of maneuver himself, so it's like it's not momentum from the kick. Somehow it flips him right into position for Lex Luger's finishing move. Especially when the camera is like below, right. so you can actually see Luger underneath him and like telegraphs. Yep. <laughs> so Luger gets the, the grand idea of racking him. Luger actually racks the giant, which I didn't, I couldn't remember if he actually did it or not. Yeah. So he does, but collapses under the weight of what Michael Buffer said was 445 and one half pounds. And that was it. Yeah. Giant picks him up, choke slams, pins him. It's really weird because it's just like a very straightforward, clean victory after that. And the collapse spot looks dangerous as hell because the giant falls right on Lex's head and it could have been a lot. Yeah. I mean, he seems fine, but it could have been bad. Yeah, they went to the choke slam of the pin, and it just like it kind of moved slowly, so yeah. you, you didn't think it was going to be the end. But then, like, nope, you just bend him. And yeah, then, the the crowd gets back into it um, finally for the the rack, the rack. Yeah, and they're you know they're into it. But the second the giant wins, 
people are out of their seats and heading for the fucking door. Like, they're, people are getting the fuck out of Dodge when this match is over. Not only that, but, like, the pay-per-view got the fuck out of Dodge, too. Yeah, because, yeah. like, I think it was within a minute they were at the, at the they do, like, those post-credit things. Yeah, I love that WCW shows the credits after their pay-per-view. Yeah. It's just something weird that they do that WWF never did, and I'm more used to WWF, so Mm -hmm. every time I see that, I'm just like, this is so weird that I'm seeing credits right now. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but before we go to the credits, uh, the giant screams at the camera that nobody is ever going to stop him, and Tony tells us that on Nitro tomorrow, we will find more about that Bash at the Beach match against Hall and Nash and the condition of Eric Bischoff. Uh, we then go to the credits over the American flag, and that is the end. Dave, what was your overall impression of the show? It was, you know, coming into this, I remember the reputation of this being a very, very highly regarded WCW pay-per-view, and I agree. It's a really good pay-per-view. Obviously, there's some matches that weren't very good, specifically Big Bubba versus John Tenta. Yep. Um Although, and it, I'm not defending that match at all, but I will at least say that it, it served as a good palate cleanser following the cruiserweight match. Sure. Because, like, it was so different and it slowed things down so much that, and people were coming off of a huge high mm-hmm. that you kind of need a low. And I it, the low doesn't need to be a bad match. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But at least it was placed in a smart part of the card. Mm-hmm. That was that was a thing that I I came away from as well. I felt like, I mean, besides the title match, the the world title match, that the the placement of every match was like really well done. I felt like the the whole flow of the pay per view worked really well. Yeah. And this was a pay per view that you got everything, a little bit of everything. You got like a brawl outside. You got the cruiserweights. You had the the big men. You had every single aspect of WCW that you could possibly be looking for. Yeah, this match uh, or this this show really um, every match felt different and there was a story to every match. That story had been promoted on the main show mm-hmm. of the, the promotion and they paid off well. Um, for yeah. the most part, everything here delivered on what you expected and uh, this was just a fantastic pay-per-view. It wasn't a three-hour slog like so many ev- shows that even have good things on them mm-hmm. they still feel you know this was a joy to watch um and i'm really glad that we decided to cover a full pay-per-view because it was just a lot of fun i'm, I'm really glad that we did it yeah and, and especially since like we mentioned before it's like we're at the point now with wsw and with nitro where we can't really um not cover the pay-per-views because they're so important yeah, i like, don't know if we'll always go as in depth but uh sure but you're absolutely right the the pay-per-views are becoming as much of a storytelling element mm-hmm. uh to what happens on nitro as as anything so to ignore them or to recap them very very quickly would be doing a disservice yes mm-hmm. uh here is a quote from the wrestling observer newsletter pay-per-view shows come and go with few new ones every month Whether they are good or bad, because there are so many, few leave any kind of lasting impression. However, the WCW Great American Bash on June 16th was one of those rare exceptions. It's hard to believe that a WCW show could be compared with some of the shows on the level of the J-Cup, but this show, for angles, was the single best pay-per-view show ever. For wrestling, it was very good as well. Uh, So then he goes on to mention that a poll of his readers... Uh, yielded a 98.5% thumbs up 
Wow. Um, which is, for the smarks that subscribe to that newsletter, is huge. I mean, that's great. Um, Malenko and Mysterio got the best match, or the most votes for best match. Mm-hmm. And John Tenta versus Big Bubba got the most votes for worst match. Okay. <laughs> Here are Dave's uh, star ratings for the match, the matches. And I'll just go through them quickly and just tell me if you agree or disagree. You know, at least kind of in the ballpark. And keep in mind, he goes in a five-star five scale. Yeah. Steiners versus Fire and Ice, three. That's fair. Yeah, that's about where I'd put it. Right. Conan versus Gato, two. I would, I would probably go lower. I would too. I would rate that as a as a one star match. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. DDP and Bagwell, two and a half. Yeah. Okay. That's about right. Malenko and Mysterio, four. Uh, I would probably like. I know he does quarters. I would. I would maybe go like four and a half. Yeah, I could go four and a quarter, four and a half. I agree that four seems just a shade low. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tenta versus Bubba, one. Yep. I'd go lower. I'd go like a half star. <laughs> Benoit versus Sullivan, four. I, I think at the time, I think nowadays it'd be like, well, we kind of seen that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think I, I think it deserves a lot of accolades for what it did at the time. Yeah, in context, I, I agree that's a four. Uh, Sting Regal, three and a half. Yeah. I... Maybe, maybe I think I liked lower. it a little less. Okay, I was gonna say I, I felt like it's more of a three star for me personally. Yeah, I I think the match, um, I think Regal dominated a bit too much of it, and and I think it like when Sting had because he had like three comebacks, and maybe it could have like they could have finished that two. And also, I just didn't like the finish either. And, and if you don't like the finish, that kind of affects a yes, lot. Yep, Horsemen versus uh, the NFL players, three and a half. Uh, sure. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to preface this by saying I think I use a different metric than Meltzer does. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a five star match because it set out to do every single thing. It excuse me. It accomplished every single thing it set out to do. Yeah. And and it it told a story like I just thought everything about the match was exactly what it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so it was five stars. Now, am I claiming that the work rate was up to that of like a. You know, Manami Toyota versus, of course not. <laughs> but um, in terms of context and history and and where it was and what it was supposed to do, mm-hmm. that's a five star match to me. No, I would agree. I, I, I mean, typically when I look at the star match, I it's just like what happens in the match. But like that was probably one of the best payoffs for an angle that maybe in in the w, the Nitro years we'll see. To, so I I would agree if you look at the whole thing like and given that the like half the wrestlers in the match have never wrestled before right you know you couldn't have expected any more so in that aspect I can see it being a five Lex versus the Giant one and a quarter <laughs> fair enough sounds about right to me <laughs> I'm not I'm not taking issue with that <laughs> all right well Dave pretty much brings us to just uh, two questions left first being what was your match of the night or uh being that there was such a notable segment mm. uh, i'll we'll open it up to segment of the night as well uh boy you know i i think i'll just i'll i think i'll just split it and i'll say that uh malenko and mysterio was the match of the night but the outsiders had the the segment of the night i i, I think both should be appreciated for like the completely different kinds of segments that they were um, but, and that's also like, I'm saying Malenko and Rey Mysterio, but also like appreciating Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan's match too. God, this is, 
there's so many choices on a show for once. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it always feels like these are so obvious. Right. I'm usually picking something that goes against the grain a little bit because I know you're going to, you know, I rely on you to go with the, the sort of obvious one. So I'm like, what kind of angle can I take at this? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> right. this one, there's just so many choices that I legitimately am like, he could say four different things and I might not pick the same one, but I would understand that choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I'm going with uh, the horsemen versus the football players. Yeah. Um, just the culmination of a lot of di- disparate elements coming together for a very satisfying conclusion to that story. Uh, just great. I couldn't couldn't really call it a five-star match and then say it's not my match of the night. Right. Um, if I was just looking at work rate, then Mysterio and Malenko far and away um, mm-hmm. would take that. And there's certainly something to be said for Benoit and Sullivan, who, again, like I said earlier, uh, had a match that was just light years ahead of its time that, yeah. that people would be copying elements from that match for. Uh, I mean, they still do yeah. to this day. Mm-hmm. Who is your MVP? Uh, I'll start. You you started last time. I'm going to say that my MVP of the night was Kevin Green oh, uh, okay. for coming into a situation that was very much out of his element, um, delivering a coked up insanity of a promo right um, but really delivering in the ring in a, in a way that i think surprised me personally and, and a lot of the crowd um you know he got compliments from as i researched the show every source was talking about just how much hard work the guy put into doing this right mm-hmm. um and coming in and wanting to do a good job and and impress and not just being another celebrity who was in there uh, so uh, kudos to Kevin Green. I think he looks like a fucking idiot with his mustache and his rat tail. Um, <laughs> but he he did just a great job. But this was also like mid 90s. So right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> he looked exactly like he should look at that time. Who is your MVP, Dave? Um, I am going to go with Eric Bischoff for my MVP, because uh, like I said before, nowadays, a promoter or like a, a an on screen uh, authority figure getting physical is is not out of the ordinary but back then it was and certainly with uh, a stunt that could have gone dangerously wrong right um i appreciate the fact that he kind of went that he went out of his way to do something like that that was so different and unique i think it really put over um, hall and ash as being like disruptors and not like just wrestlers also i i feel like it's necessary to give a a, a least valuable player for this and it's whoever was responsible for that sting promo at the beginning yeah i i, if I it's don't sting or if it's a creative team or whatever you know and and i would say that him and gene are also like responsible because yes. they could have said no to making that because they didn't need to make that as part of the angle but it it comes off so poorly yeah and and since it was like early in the show we we hadn't gotten like a lot of great action i could have been like this show sucks. Yeah. You know, so I did, I, I just feel like it's important to point out that there was like that one part that's just like, it really is like sticks out. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And, uh, you know, even though you try to take things in context and say, well, at the time, I mean, even by 1997, you had to know better than that. There's just, there's right. not really an excuse for, yeah. for some of the shit they said. So mm-hmm. totally understandable. Uh, well, that's going to wrap it up. Thanks for uh, sticking with us. Again, you can follow us on Twitter. You can email the show. You can check us out on Facebook. Please uh, rate, review the show on iTunes. We always love reading reviews. There's, I don't know, six or seven of them out there, and mm-hmm. it's always fun reading your guys' thoughts. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those people who begs for five-star reviews. Just share your honest feedback, something you think we can do better. Let us know, and we'll try our best. Oh, and last uh, last thing I wanted to say is that now that I'm settled in my house and 
and our baby is born. We certainly hope to be recording episodes a little more regularly than we have. Uh, Dave is still separated from me by about a state. Uh, so, (laughs) so we'll be, um, you know, it's not going to be probably every single week like it was before, but, uh, we, we don't want these long gaps like there's been, um, Mm -hmm. between episodes. So we're, we're already have plans in the work to record the next nitro so we can give you the follow up to tonight's show and talk about what, uh, how these various angles pay off and how some of them continue right here where the big boys play 20 years of nitro. Two teams who approach this match the same way but differently as well. Whoa.